welcome to the Director's Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as part of the Now Playing Network. In each episode of the Director's Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, their career touchstones, uh, personal labors of love, and hidden gems amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films that can come up when you take a look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Uh, and this journey, uh, this week, goes and looks at a director who can make a whole number of films almost with regards in one single film. <laughs> and we're talking uh, about South Korean director Bong Joon-ho. And we have a, a guest to uh, talk about uh, that director. And he is a uh, hosts a podcast talking about science fiction movies called Still Watching the Skies. And like to welcome to the Directors Club, uh, uh, Robert Reinecke. Hey, Robert. Thanks, Al. I'm happy to be on. I guess I can complete my bingo card of Brad and Al. I already have uh, Jim, Patrick, and Jim and Patrick is my card here. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we're glad to have you on. And uh, what's uh, the latest thing you've been doing on your podcast? Uh, well, just recently we dropped an episode on... Uh, 1974 Zardoz by uh, John Borman. Oh wow! <laughs> the the most styling outfit Sean Connery has ever found himself in. Yeah, that is, uh, I believe that is a true statement. <laughs> Are you a fan of Zardoz? You find it like Borman's most Bormanish effort? I it probably is his most Bormanish effort. I don't know if I really I'm I'm not a fan of it, but. It also wasn't a, a chore to sit through either. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's actually a pretty good appetizer for Bong Joon-ho stuff because, <laughs> boy, is there some wild, wild tangents in that one. Everything but a lead in a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we can. I think we can just wait in, this in terms of the director we're going to be talking about. <laughs> and, um, uh, Robert, how did you get uh, your introduction to this director? Oh, um... I actually belong to a, a film preview society in uh, Milwaukee, and um, I guess right around when it was coming out, they decided to surprise us with a preview screening of The Host uh, mm. when it came out. So came in knowing nothing about it, and uh, uh, came out being a big fan of his work. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is, the host is the first uh, movie of his that I ended up seeing, and I had a similar super rushed reaction. It was in an earlier podcast that we did on Jonathan Demi. We were kind of like talking about the remarkable quality of something wild, how halfway through when you're watching something wild, you realize, wait a minute, this is a totally different movie. <laughs> <laughs> and good Lord, the host is – you get that feeling over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it seems like that was uh, most people's introduction, uh, mine as well, and it uh, for a long time was the most profitable movie to come out of South Korea. Wow, that's really interesting considering it – one of the things that it touches on is the political side of things, right? Right, which will be uh, pretty common throughout uh, the filmography. Mm-hmm. We want to mention that, like, Bong Joon-ho is actually part of a very great movement in movies uh, called the that's now called the Korean New Wave. A lot of the films of this new wave have this kind of same similarity in that there's just such a fluidity of different genres, and it can jump in from 
all sorts of different tones within the same film. Like the uh, the basic like I uh, leader about this, I would say, I guess would be Chan Wook Park, the director of Old Boy, and the um, the Vengeance series, and who's recently had some success with the uh, I think The Handmaiden is the name of it. But then there's also some uh, really remarkable directors such as Hong Sang Soo, who has a whole set of like like films that kind of turn in on themselves, like Charlie Kaufman style. And there is a whole series of films that really work the idea of like the serial killer genre to great end. Most notably like a film called I Saw the Devil, which is to me nothing less than a the good, the bad, and the ugly of killers. <laughs> movies. It, it seems like a lot of South Korean films are very dark and a good portion of them uh, go to the ultraviolent at, at times. The idea, and the ideas of the violence part is that that's kind of the one of the quote unquote charms of South Korean films is that you really are left. It's like the best kind of surrealist movies that you really are put in a place where you don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and um, one of these filmmakers is a, a really remarkable one called um, Kim Ki Duk, and he's very much specializes in in pushing you outside into some incredibly weird places and. Uh, and whether it's violence or sex or other kind of transgressive stuff through like his films such as like um, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring, he gets you to like really be able to think of new uh, think in new ways after you watch some of his films. Between Chan Wook Park, the the if he's not tied, he's a clo- uh, Bong Joon Ho comes in a close second in terms of people's um, uh, recognition of the Korean uh, new wave. And he, like like Chan Wook Park, his his career breaks into a little bit of um, some English language films that will be coming up later in his filmography. But he started off in uh, 1994 with a uh, short film called Incoherence. And it's a series of parts, actually, about three seemingly unrelated men who are, like, committing petty crimes on the eve of an important televised discourse on social disorder in Korea. So, um, uh, Robert, you got a chance to take a look at, like, all three parts which were available online? Yeah. Uh, I, I guess one of the parts is, is not available, but, I mean, it's uh, it's very straightforward. It is a student film, but, I mean, one is a professor that has his eye on one of his female students and has some pornography in uh, his office and he accidentally sends that student up to his office to retrieve some notes and has to rush up there to hide his uh, uh, crime because I believe pornography is illegal in Korea. Hmm, Uh, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) Second one is, uh, second part is called Up the Alleys and it involves a jogger who's stealing milk and he offers a, a pint of milk to the paper boy uh, who's delivering the newspapers and the paper boy gets uh, uh, yelled at by uh, uh, the owner that, that catches him and uh, he ends up chasing the uh, jogger through these various streets and alleys, eventually losing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, third part is uh, a, a drunk uh, guy uh, gets caught uh, uh, urinating in public and gets scolded by a uh, night watchman security guard and uh, ends up uh, uh, actually taking advantage of the security guard by uh, uh, shitting in his lunch. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, we, we didn't get to see that third part because of uh, internet uh, availability, but uh, the the first two came off very much as comic pieces. Would would you say the third one fit in that mode as well? Yeah, I mean it, it, it's hard to just pigeonhole them into one because there's a little bit of there's some serious elements to it, but there, there's it's definitely a lighter touch to it. I mean, I I don't know how I mean. However you look at it, uh, uh, defecating in somebody's meal is not a <laughs> is yeah. both a horrible act. Even if it is a bit funny, so I, I mean that kind of sums up uh, Bong Joon Ho. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? No, that's that's a really great way of putting it. That's right. It's like uh, like he, I guess maybe he can get partial credit for that scene from the help, right? Right. <laughs> Right. So, so, so they they end, they end up with those uh, three men end up on uh, TV out of touch with uh, everybody else complaining about the ills of society, while the three people that they kind of took advantage of go on with their day to day lives, basically disconnected from um, the hmm. hypocrites on TV. Oh, nice. So that you know that's an interesting touchstone, right? Because I think that's a point that reflects. In a bunch of um, his other films, the way the media horrifically goes and twists out what <laughs> is happening, what is ha- what is actually happening to the characters, right? Right, and there's there's some little. None of these characters meet a, a full justice, but there might be some little elements that come back to to bite them because the newspaper man and on TV, he's actually the the publisher of the newspaper who the. Uh, woman who had her milk stolen cancels the newspaper so theoretically he he's punished in a certain sense from a distance even mm-hmm. if nobody actually realizes it hmm cool that's a kind of a hmm, that's a kind of a nice twilight zoney uh, <laughs> uh cross with uh, maybe prestigiously way of like uh whims of fortune right yeah and i i think that'll be something that we'll see throughout uh, bong joon ho nobody ever gets the full justice they deserve but they might get some sort of justice <laughs> It, so it's interesting to see how many different uh, styles and themes kind of carry on through all of these films. So before we talk about them individually, I noticed that uh, each one is tackling a different genre. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who want to play the Director's Club drinking game, uh, the amount of times we talk about tone in this <laughs> podcast uh, may get you pretty wasted because for better or for worse, uh, this is a director who loves zigzagging from tone to tone at, at uh, points uh, that sometimes enhance the film and sometimes uh, in my opinion doesn't but i think that'll be an interesting interesting thing to explore yeah i have a feeling we might get like three different reactions to each one of his films like big uh, i mean for me i when i sometimes when i look back on a certain film i just go wow there's like had seven things but when, when <laughs> i fo- i found like when i'm watching it that everything seems to be flowing really nicely and and I think that's kind of one of the things that we, that I that I hope we'll be able to return to is just the idea of like how he quote unquote gets away with certain things that you wouldn't expect a director to be able to get away with mm-hmm. there's I, one I, real notable picture about where that counts by the way but anyway sorry Robert go ahead yeah well I, I think he enjoys uh Taking setting up expectations and then subverting them. He said Psycho is one of his favorite films uh, in ah. Lead Up to Mother, and I think uh, you kind of look at him trying to replicate uh, Hitchcock's trick of getting us all rooting for uh, Janet Lee and making her disappear as, as something that he tries to emulate in his uh, uh, storytelling. Hmm. 
Yeah, you know, that's right. That's a good point. Um, I've noticed, like, his contemporary, Wook Park, like, had also tried to do that, but it's always seemed to me, or that's just my impression, that he seems to just actively aim towards having things that clearly look like 90 degrees, you know, like <laughs> one step away from, like, having a, a clown appear from out of frame or something like that. <laughs> and and for, again, for whatever reason, maybe because a Bong Joon-ho is a little more in my wheelhouse. I found that it flows just a little bit better on these, uh, on the films of his. Now, did you think that the three? Did you think the three stories, uh, Robert, intersected nicely, and and it's get kind of gives this like tapestry of a different environment. I think they they intersected well enough. I mean, obviously they stand separate. I mean, they're all three episodic incidents, and you need mm-hmm. the fourth one to tie it together. But I, I think that thematically they all come together. Although I think the Professor looking at having pornography in his office is a little less uh, directly uh, victimizing than the other two. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, so that's a pretty that's a pretty auspicious like you know student film de- debut of his, and he'd he'd uh, he parlayed that a couple years later with his first feature film, Barking Dogs Never Bite, in the year two thousand. The film is a story of a teacher who's struggling with a pregnant wife and in getting a good um, instructor position, but he is bothered by a constantly yapping dog out in his gigantic apartment complex. <laughs> so in the course of trying to deal with that particular situation, he comes across several weird people and situations. <laughs> and the movie lets us ruminate from there. The, the film opens with a... a disclaimer that no animals were hurt during the making of it uh which you know thankfully so but that that's definitely needed because this film deals quite uh, uh, uh graphically on uh cruelty torture and killing of dogs which and it's also uh, a black comedy, so the attempt is done for comic effect. Um, kind of contrasting this to another film that that try, does the same thing, and I think works far better is a fish called Wanda, which also deals oh, nice. with uh, dogs that are are, are killed in uh, comic ways based on uh, character traits in that movie. But now you have the full talents of Monty Python and the Ealing Studios kind of coming together as a, a comedy dream team to make this really difficult thing to be funny funny and here i don't know robert tell us what you think but i I did not think it was funny i thought it was so disconcerting that any any qualities that the rest of the film may had were just uh lost as i was dreading the next scene of dog cruelty (laughs) well i mean he he does play with it at the end i think the final gag uh really works a hundred percent uh with the threatened impalement of the dog yeah. at the end, but I I would agree that he he probably 
gets off a, a little bit on the wrong foot there. He's a little too cruel up front, and I don't think the main character, the, the would-be professor, the actor is all that charismatic and really sells us on uh, his annoyance, desperation, pressures uh, due to the corruption of uh, how to get ahead in Korean society and uh, how to support a pregnant wife and, and all of that. I think they he comes up a little short in there, and he, we're never quite on his side. Uh, it yeah, never but... seems it never seems like a an understandable thing that he does. Um, but I, I think there's a lot to like it. I, I think um, he 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 does have. I mean, it is cruel to the dogs, but I I think there's also some other good stuff in here. I like the story in the basement about Boiler Kim and uh, the <laughs> corruption and how it comes back to haunt uh, people. And I I I think. Focusing on the social ills uh, helps, and I I think uh, the female lead uh, uh, Beiduna uh, is actually quite uh, quite uh, charismatic, and uh, she's just trying to do the right thing, and she's also frustrated with uh, society in her own way. I I guess she kicks off a, a side view mirror at one point off an expensive automobile, something right. that uh, he would return to another time, and. But she finds a way to uh, uh, maybe not get too concerned about getting ahead. Uh, maybe she can drop out at the end. Uh, but she just wants to do the right thing. Um, but I, I would agree that it, it has some some tonal difficulties. And it, it I think it's a good first film, but I think it is definitely a first film. Right. You see him kind of trying out some really impressive camera work that will be utilized much better as as his career goes on um but i do agree with you that uh the female lead is the uh kind of the saving grace of the film you know as we when we're following her we're at least following uh you know somebody who who's bringing uh her her own personality in into the film and uh and and you know the the, the professor uh, character you know he might have the uh, person even if he had the personality of Cary Grant it would be really difficult to follow him as a lead uh, after he throws wow. a dog off a uh, balcony. I think Cary Grant could do it. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> uh, Cary Grant, Humphrey Bogart, they could totally make that work. <laughs> what who could not make it work is is unfortunately the star of this movie, which unfortunately. Uh, to me, like while Brad, you mentioned that there's that disclaimer that no dogs were harmed, uh, a same disclaimer could not be said for audience members watching it. <laughs> I, mean, I was kind of taken aback when I had seen this film because this is one of these films that you know just uh, you know sometimes like when you get like a char- you can get a Charlie horse when you hit the wrong nerve on your elbow or whatever. I had a mental Charlie horse watching this film because <laughs> I was constantly going. Why am I looking at this? Why did Bong, Bong Joon-ho think I should care about the guy who constantly puts his cap backwards before he starts eating, feasting on an, uh, a dog in the basement? <laughs> why, why should I care when someone's being chased and they start playing this really wacky kind of jazz music? <laughs> Some kind of like odd ragtime. <laughs> um, and most often like the main with the main character who 
it, who encompasses this like Craig Wasson slash um, Matthew Modine slash Aaron Taylor Johnson like black hole of charisma. <laughs> like you, uh, you're so right, Robert, in that he actually has. There's a lot of things going on in this guy's life that you can look at like you know from an intellectual and a plot level and good lord i don't care about this guy for any of them <laughs> if if he followed the dog off the roof they'd be fine by me <laughs> the, thing, the thing is the, the dog stuff isn't even central to the character growth it's it's a it's a shock value thing that's that, that's, go, that's going on progression of different animals right right, right. <laughs> you, you know you you have this uh, shock value thing going on but if you took that out and then just kind of looked at uh you know this this fellow's ambitions and you know that he'd you know do anything to get ahead and he's got to deal with this uh annoying wife of his who won't stop uh (laughs) who won't leave him alone yeah uh there there there's stuff there that uh you know, it could could have been more emphasized if uh, if it weren't undercut. Yeah, I mean, like the the wife uh, husband interactions. I mean, yeah, that's it's interesting that in a movie that starts off with a guy getting annoyed by a dog, that you basically get the South Korean version of a Lockhorns comic strip. <laughs> but but I yeah, uh, that guy actually just does not really dissuades almost all interest in like you know what ends up happening to him i mean if you really think about it his conclusion is could kind of been pretty powerful in its own way right like how he sort of wins but not really but instead like no all right the draw the curtain on him i guess right (laughs) yeah i mean i I think it's the basic idea that you're gonna see a lot of bong joon ho's films that the the worst thing is to be trapped in the society and be part of it uh, become a cog in the machine huh. uh, but that's and, a great point and I, I think that's what he's going for i think he does it better in subsequent ones but i i think i have some a little bit more <coughs> sympathy for him maybe not empathy but at least i i understand where the pressures are coming from and needing to support a pregnant wife and not not having any money and those pressures although I, I do agree that their relationship could could have been uh, at least you can see some more flickerings of it. I mean, they do make it clear about halfway through that she's not just a shrew that she's going through some shit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but they they could Bong Joon Ho could have balanced that relationship a, a lot better earlier. Although I think there are some some nice little moments there. I, I do enjoy the use of the roll of toilet paper. Uh, to yeah. settle a bet. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, he's he, he's already shown then, like in um, yeah, more maybe more in plot terms and incoherence, but he's he shows in Barking Dogs that like he is very willing to go completely goofy at this or that moment, like when the main character is trying to escape from this kind of zombie slash homeless person in the basement, and and he just bangs his head like does a backward <laughs> flop right on the ground and then ka-chunk you know it's like a totally could have been like a old vaudeville bit right if not actually a clownish bit from a circus mm-hmm. yeah and i i do want to say that there is a nice budding sense that like like how i think robert you you're really made it on point when you said the enclosed space of a society where you can't escape that's a very interesting concern of of bong joon ho and you look at what the setting is. The setting is almost exclusively, right, that apartment complex. Right. So 
I'm going to throw a crazy analogy. It's almost like the ultra deadpan, like Kung Fu hustle kind of thing, right? Where like there's these, these different characters who are meant to like represent these different parts of society and they're all kind of doing their own thing. And the movie just kind of explores how one person's weird in one direction, another person's odd in another direction. And, and it's just, lets you soak in how bizarre this kind of behavior is. Yeah, I, I would say that. And I mean, you got the janitor in the basement that really just wants some meat for his meal. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to be clear, dog meat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, it, it, I think it's also we have some cultural differences here. I mean, it's not quite as frowned upon in Korea as it is here. My I mean, understanding is that in the younger generation, though, it, it, it's still considered pretty shocking. Yeah. And it, it, it's more of a... Uh, so, and I think probably no accident that the character who participates in it is uh, an older uh, right. character yeah. because uh, you know even even the characters in the film are are pretty appalled and uh, this this uh, unlike just about all of his other films this one was a big box office flop in Korea. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it cost enough to be a. A flap, <laughs> right, right. Just, just didn't, nobody didn't get to seen. See yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I it well, didn't get seen, and I, I can understand that too. And I mean, I, I think you can see some of the the inputs here. I, I would say food and being a pet or something that shows up later in Okja. But yep. I think mm-hmm. it, it might be handled with a little bit more sophistication there. It it might. We're gonna we're gonna see a little, a little later on in the podcast how successful yeah. that happens. But yeah, but I me- think you also can can see his his eye as a director. I think it it actually is pretty good for a low budget, and he knows when to use extras. Um, I know he just shows some extras kind of in the fantasy scene when uh, uh, the female lead uh, screws up her courage to go rescue that dog with the. Yeah, right. People cheering in the background, or when the she has the final realization, they, he has another group of dra- joggers uh, jog by in the background as there's something yeah. momentous is going on. Uh, mm-hmm. th- th- that's one of two scenes that I found really uh, visually interesting uh, near the end, seeing those uh, other jo- joggers show up by surprise in the background, but also uh, the way the uh, architecture of their apartment is used during the first chase when uh, when she's uh, she saw him uh, throw the dog and, and tries to, to get a hold of him. There's this uh, really interesting long shot of them being chased along this outdoor uh, uh, building wide uh, building long uh, balcony that uh, that again showed some of the visual um, expertise that we're going to see a lot more of yeah he is to me he's has a little of the kind of exploration of hey this is an interesting camera angle mm-hmm. or this is a, a um, nicely put together shot that that maybe you'd get out of like maybe an early De Palma kind of film, mm-hmm. um, except that he does it a little more random. Like if he'll he'll do one that makes it look something extra horrific. He'll do something that maybe looks extra goofy, and like it'll 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 like skid over into <laughs> a turn on the left and right, and 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 like like the second dog I believe that perishes is a per, like a perfect example where I believe he's holding the dog and they're watching through the binoculars, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and he's just holding and he's holding for a while. 
And then he just puts the dog back on the balcony, and then only to hurl it like twenty feet, twenty feet out. And then I think they even like have a, a focus on a close-up of the dog splaying its legs as it's flying down. And they're like, well, okay, that's as a way of like shocking and, and weirding people out. I, I guess that's kind. I guess that's kind of effective. I, I just wish that whether through like the acting or the plot mechanics, to such as they are, you know, that it amounted to a little more. Yeah. But I mean, he, the only thing he does is he gives some money to uh, a poor woman to kind of uh, redeem himself, and I I don't think it's enough. Although I I do think yep. it is uh, it is symbolic that he pulls it out of the bribe that he's going to deliver to move himself up. Yep, right. Uh, but he took the like he took a, some of these techniques, and then I feel he put it together in a wonderful way like in his next movie about, um, Memories of Murder in 2003 This is a story like about a small town that has had several girls who's, who have been assaulted and murdered, and this leads the local cops to try several different kinds of approaches in their attempts <laughs> to find the killer. Um, t- one of the things that like this movie just like does just so remarkably actually harkens back this uh, to. Something I've heard from the, the Robert Altman movie The Player, where like there's a scene in The Player where uh, Buck Henry is trying to pitch a sequel to The Graduate, and he says, "Hey, this sequel is The Graduate. It's about these guys from The Graduate, but it's funny." <laughs> <laughs> and like, so we're in Memories of Murder. We have a very serious subject that does not shy away from the violent results of the act. And part of the amazing thing that it shows is these cops, these cops are on the case and what do they do to try to resolve the case they find a a stooge and they try to beat him into confessing (laughs) but it's to play for laughs right and and strangely enough uh, this i think is his most disciplined film even though it does have some excursions in, into comedy, it, it doesn't do it anywhere nearly as broadly as I think a lot of his other films do. So the overall effect, I, I think, is really stronger. I, 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 for me, this is uh, my favorite his, of his films. And I like how it doesn't just do the procedural, but it really, as you were saying, Al, kind of explores the you know, p- police abuse and... Uh, the ramifications of that in trying to solve a crime. This uh, was based on a real-life incident of a a series of murders in in a small town that never got solved. And, you know, you could kind of see at the very beginnings of this why it never got solved if, if, you know, we're to believe this portrayal of of the police and their kind of mishandling and misguided uh, police work here. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, sometimes when you imagine a film that would have, you know, what we just described, the idea that these cops are corrupt and it's the system that's corrupt, 
usually that would be considered like as an obstacle as part of the story where like like the more dedicated cops or the the um, plucky investigative reporter would try to solve the situation. <laughs> but he, what's really remarkable about this film is it's it's not even done to me in a Doctor Strange Love kind of satirical manner. It is treated in such a matter of fact way. You know, the corruption of the police force is not just done as like, oh, that's what's things are going to happen, but it's also taken as a given for how clownish the local police are going to behave. And that's a really remarkable kind of open perspective that I I guess I don't see in a lot of Western films, aside from maybe like used cars, so you know, that's a Mecca's film. <laughs> and they do have a uh, another policeman brought in from Seoul who uh, kind of views the, the local cops, uh, you know, as bumpkins and uh, thinks, well, he's going to bring his expertise. And he's also viewed with suspicion by the local cops because yeah. of that. But uh, his methods don't really uh, garner that much better results. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just compare. I mean, compare how like a Western would be, have the treatment of you know the the city cop versus country cop, right? They would like there would be there would they would have picked a side, right, and had a stance out here. But here, the like it's real. It is really fascinating. This the that the city cop is more professional, and his disdain for the bumpkins is com- not, is not just completely earned, but it's like literally taken as a matter of course. Yeah, like these he he treats them like crap because. They really deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I, I think one of the things it's going for is that there's really no way to solve this case. They try science, they try instinct, they try just beating people, and they come up with dead ends in every direction here. And uh, um, I, I would, I would say we also should say that Song Kang Ho is the lead uh, uh, detective of the the province or the the rural region, and. At the end, I think he uh, becomes more dedicated about getting to the truth than anybody else. I mean, I think they're all desperate to solve this case and end the murders. Uh, but they, that, out of desperation, they grasp onto everything and anything, right. and even if it doesn't lead anywhere. I mean, they they say he's targeting women that wear red, and then he does, the killer doesn't target women that doesn't wear red. So was it a pattern, or was it just a coincidence, or was right. it a coincidence the song played on that night uh, of the of mm-hmm. the re- killings, or uh, what's what's he up to, or what is it? And I don't think that the film ever comes to an answer to that. Right in that way, like the film is a to me is a fascinating uh, comparison companion piece, and in a way, kind of a bit of an inversion of David Fincher's magnificent film Zodiac, which also had as its subject this kind of unsolved crime and and how it um, alters the people who have dedicated themselves to try to solve it. Um, and I do see this kind of real switch that happens because in Zodiac, the Zodiac killer, even when he's just a presence, just a media presence that the police pursue it ruins their lives almost as badly as if he had been still stalking the physical person had still been stalking them but here is a case where well i mean the main inspector he may have wanted to have the crime solved but my impression was is that he was if he got a guy who was guilty who was whether you beat it out of him so he admitted he was guilty that would have been fine by him but what he actually comes to a greater understanding and an increased level of dedication where like Zodiac kind of shows how 
that dedication could almost ruin you, you know? But they both like really work at this idea of the um, of when you have this really traumatic uh, societal event, on, in, and I th- want to say that the real life story upon which this story, movie is based on was like I think the first ser- uh, real mass media serial killer event that happened in South Korea, and so it shows how this kind of like traumatic event causes an increased stain when it can't be resolved and when how you think to all like you had said Robert how all these methods will come up short and and that uh, brings up the very powerful uh, final shot which I think connects into this uh, idea of you know of how you're affected by something that like this that happened in the past and what it did the com- to the community where um the uh, police officer after going back to the scene of the crime and uh realizing well there was a lead but it ne- you know never really went anywhere uh it ends with him looking straight at us looking straight into the camera i was wondering what what you guys made of that and what you think he was trying to uh say with that move well, he's still searching for answers, I think, and he's searching everywhere, and this is never going to be resolved, and it has affected him deeply. Even he, though he has committed, uh, quit the police force, he's still, it's still unresolved, and he still needs that answer. And I, I, I find it quite haunting, and I, I find it quite well composed, and it, it might be my favorite closing shot of the 21st century. Hmm. Oh, Wow. Okay. It's uh, interesting you say that because one of my favorite um, closing shots of the last couple of years um, works on a similar level for a uh, different movie, um, uh, Martin Scorsese's like Wolf of Wall Street. Sure. And I think think the way – the reason that it ends that way is similar to the reason that Memories of Murder ends that way. In both cases, I think it is meant to be a reckoning directly to the audience. A way that, like, is when he's facing that camera, he is literally looking out at everybody watching him and, like, I guess implicitly asking us the questions, well, what do we do on this kind of situation? You know, in, in Wolf of Wall Street, there's a whole number of different people who are looking, but here it's just the, the main policeman. But if you, if you, especially considering the real-life story behind this uh, movie, when South Korean audiences might have been really, really affected by it because it's, I believe it's, the crime is unsolved to this day. And so that's really a, a reckoning that they would have to deal with, and the movie ends very powerfully by doing that. Right. It, it does take the murders really seriously. There's a extremely... Uh, beautiful and mysterious shots that's used in all the uh, promotional materials of this uh, cross with uh, uh, the symbolizing the uh, the, the dead girl's uh, clothes on it. And, you know, the shots of this are just so uh, mysterious and, and elegant. And it's interesting that to have them exist in the same film as some of the more broader elements of uh, of the police investigation, uh, like where they decide they're uh, looking for uh, 
a hairless man uh, who, uh, <laughs> yeah. who be, because there were there was no hair was was found uh, uh, in the aftermath of a rape. That uh, so then the the cop goes into a uh, uh, a steam house to uh, just yeah. search out every yeah. man who's hairless down there that yeah. he could find with and do what with that information I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, you're 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 clutch you're clutching at hairs at that point, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think you I think you really got a, a great phrase on it, like the the elegance of how of the mystery about it, you know, like he um while he has moments in Memories of Murder that that can be like interpreted as goofy, they're given a level of restraint that is not evident in uh in the uh, Barking Dogs movie. You right. Know? <laughs> even when they're like even when they're beating up a suspect and it's and it's clear, oh well, you know, that's just what happens at this uh, whack station it's not like done like with like garish like camera moves or weird sound effects or anything like that it's just treated as like a matter of fact and and um and i think that makes the the sequences all the more startling for that they are funny right because when they get to to the third suspect the community is already aware that the police are beating their suspects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a yeah, what a really interesting like social like you know undercurrent that was popping in on that, mm. right? And and yeah, his and his restraint also really reflects like as you described, um, Brad, about like that about those like not just the ending sequence, but the setting. The setting of the killing is. Pretty compelling, like visually, how you have all these rows of the green fields, and there's that one single gutter mm-hmm. where some, where some of the bodies had been, had been found, you know, and this, and it's kind of like it kind of like does to roads what David Lynch <laughs> did with bugs in uh, Blue mm-hmm. Velvet, you know, to show like li- the gutter is that like literal line of darkness mm. through this kind of like uh, through this rural environment, and and hmm. I think that's one of the things that I uh, I find really interesting on the movie in that, like how the it's kind of I'm gonna make a crazy comparison how like Night of the Hunter has two kinds of villains, but the villain that people know about and the vi- and then the true like force of mm-hmm. evil right like how um, the preacher is just a force of evil mm-hmm. but. But the kind of matron of the small town, Icy Spoon, who knows the gossip on everybody and then starts leading people astray by getting them into the clutches of the preacher, that's a person who is all too real and all too real a problem. You know, in a, in a kind of similar way, Memories of Murder, like, looks at this kind of corruption. And this is just the banality, banal evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but how do people who are, can be evil in a banal way deal with evil in a monstrous, like, kind of like... You know, society-shattering kind of way, right? You know, and and so like, uh, like, uh, and and how do you think that like that? How do you think like memories of uh, murder like gets the impression for you, Robert? Well, I I think I think that's definitely there is this uh, introduction of evil, into big evil into this rural uh, town. But I think it's also a, a kind of an indictment on how the police are set up in Korea. I mean. I think you can see a lot of it set up for them to just kind of be people that uh, put down dissent uh, of the government because there's protests going on of uh, this uh, of the government uh, during this uh, this time and uh, I, there's at least one scene where they're, they're seen that they're pulled off the case to help uh, uh, do. Uh, crowd control for a government parade and uh, at a key moment when they're trying to call in the uh, 
troops to kind of uh, uh, go out there on a rainy night to, to possibly save a woman that they can't find anybody because they've all been called out, out, right. out to uh, uh, uphold a government or put down a protest. Yes. Um, so I, I think that's going on in there, too. Um, but yeah. I think... I, I, I think Clearly, uh, there, there's there's different levels of corruption, and they all kind of coalesce here to to prevent the case from being solved. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right, and it's a really good point about like that protest part because it's something that uh, I, I think audiences in like say Western films could find just a little bit startling and and fascinating as well upon like how the idea that like the like and like in Zodiac. Like, the police are stymied because, like, information is hard to transfer. Like, they like fax, they have to use fax machines, and people have these old records and stuff. But all those obstacles are obstacles that are impediments to the actual investigation. There is not a case where, like, the cops are literally pulled to do something completely different, you know? <laughs> and this is, again, this isn't treated as some horrible, like... It, the movie doesn't treat it as this like horrible obscenity that of justice. It's just a matter of fact way that the police and the people in that society have to behave. Every so often, there's a protest, and they have to deal with it. And the exact same thing gets echoed uh, in a future uh, film uh, um, when the characters are allegedly dealing with a different threat. They're instead going to be doing crowd control. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the way that like the way that he uh, puts in. These things that people need to be concerned about, and but they and while they have to deal with it, it is simultaneously then not that big a deal to be to stress and emphasize. I mean, that's a really interesting perspective on just the kind of different things that people got to do. <laughs> yeah, and so so yeah. Ultimately, for my my general impressions on this is that like it's it's pretty darn triumphant in how it manages to mix all these things together mm-hmm. and on top of all that it is a crackerjack kind of procedural like there's a yeah. very for all like the for the fact that like it does for all the things that don't get resolved like it does have this hunt that hunt aspect is real prevalent suspense it has suspenseful moments like there are these clues and these leads that and these this feeling that you're getting to the mystery are there periodically um, and then it becomes all the more tragic that it is left, you know, unresolved. Yeah. yeah, and even the dead ends seem to kind of lead somewhere, and the real leads seem to lead to dead ends. I think the one point he follows up the uh, urban legend of a killer living under the outhouse. Yeah. <laughs> but it actually leads him to a woman that's been raped and uh, yeah. has some key information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- yeah, that's amazing. Like that, right? Uh, it's I think that kind of is a spirit that inspires like his films, like and that I'm and inspires the way that he goes into different directions. Because I think to Bong Joon Ho, when you go and when you go zig instead of zag, when you start going sideways, you never know where things will end up. <laughs> and that kind of attitude is probably reaches its one of its greatest manifestations in his next movie, The Host in 2006. Everybody seems to think I'm lazy. I don't mind. I think that crazy. Everywhere 
it's a story about like a mon- a creature that's threatening a, a town and members of a small family, and the family has to when one of the family members is kidnapped by or abducted by the creature, they have to actually deal with problems from the police and bureaucratic forces, which become nearly as threatening as the monster itself. Now, when, when I talk about the host and, and people have asked me what kind of movie it is, I said, I basically like to say, well, this is the best monster movie, family comedy, political satire <laughs> ever made. And... It is, to me, startling how you have all these things that are given this level of attention, and it all works. See, I agreed with you up until the last statement, because while I think the various elements here work, I don't know that they all work together. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciated the monster movie thrills for what they were, the... uh, the, the the monster is very originally drawn. It's this giant, toothy salamander-like yeah. thing with tentacles. It's not the standard monster that we've seen over and over again. And the CGI uh, is quality for the time. Does and and you know and and does give you the feeling of a real threat here. Um, that, all, I just want to quickly mm-hmm. jump in that it's also a very good example of the fast giant monster, something right. that doesn't yeah. really come across in like this these Godzilla type films. Right, it doesn't lumber. It moves in 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 unique ways, uh, utilizing its tail to uh, go across uh, bridges and, and whatnot. Um, then the other two aspects are a little more problematic for me. Um, the political uh, point of view of the film is set up right at the beginning, and and the thing about the way uh, Bong does his politics is they're they're not mysterious. They're very, he's very much going to state out front what he thinks of politically is going on. So he has uh, uh, basically in a science lab, uh, an American director has ordered his subordinate to uh, dump uh, uh, dozens of bottles of formaldehyde into the river because they are dusty. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's the fact that supposedly based on a real incident. Right, right. That that part, yeah, that part. Uh, Whoa, I guess man, was that, supposed that, to happen. I wonder mind, if man. it was actually because of the dust, though, because that that just seemed like a <laughs> strange just, reason for anyone so. to want to get rid of. Uh, <laughs> they, they really needed room for their widescreen TV. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. then you have, uh, then you have this uh, this family uh, who uh, you know, you're, and, and uh, you know, and. and the tone for the family is really all over the place because uh, early on in the film, uh, the young uh, daughter uh, is uh, uh, apparently uh, eaten by the monster, although we find out later that that's not the case. But uh, the rest of the family does think that. And so they there is a memorial that the town is, uh, is holding for all the uh, victims of the monster. And... The family then proceeds to uh, go into these hysterics where uh, and it's it's handled for comedy, um, not 
again, I don't think well, but they fall over each other. They start rolling around on the ground in in <laughs> grief. But again, not not in a way like where you're you know where like where you're touched by this, but in a way that seems to be going for some weird comic effect. They're touched all right. <laughs> right. And you also have uh, the lead is is again uh, Song Kang Ho, who uh, does uh, in his you know three different uh, uh, films uh, for Bong does. <laughs> Three very different characters. This one has his uh, is this slacker dude with his hair dyed blonde, yeah. and he seems to be um, he he falls asleep at the uh, drop of a pin for some reason. <laughs> yeah, like he's, what, he's yeah, not what, mentally all there. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, that does right. That that family is yeah. That family is odd to say the least. I, I wonder, Brad, if you were. If you were questioning whether Andrew Zhilovsky had had a ticket to get to uh, <laughs> South Korea. <laughs> well, no, then that would be in every scene. <laughs> right, yeah. right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, that is a very, like, to me, a Zhilovsky and slash Ken Russell kind of moment of just like, oh, whoa, let's just show some extreme, extreme behavior. Like, I well, like to me. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Robert. Well, if if they don't have the extreme behavior, there's no reason that people won't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes, that's true. It's actually he has he's one of the rare examples of this kind of monster movie formula where usually a scientist is saying perfectly reasonable scientific things and the community doesn't believe him, but a goofy blonde-haired narcoleptic guy, well, okay, maybe I can dismiss what he has to say, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? I think though the movie is a little fairer on that that you give it credit for maybe because his goofiness is set up really right at the beginning like he was behaving quite aberrantly when he's over at that long that long um uh, trench where the monster first makes his appearance right you know? right and and when the monster appears everybody else is naturally kind of frightened about him but he is kind of frightened and maybe a um, Stooges slash Lou Costello like manner to <laughs> to the monster. So so I mean I really appreciate that in the film because the film got me in this place where I'm feeling both things at once. I want to laugh at him at the same time. I get that like oh he might be eaten at any moment. You See know? my prejudice towards the, these kind of films is that if you're going to have uh, a wild concept, if you're if you're going to have a movie about a, a giant monster salamander. You need uh, someone uh, in the lead who can kind of um, uh, be be a, be more of a center, who who you mm. can you can follow and be believable while all these unbelievable things are happening all around him. Which is a point I'll return to in in one of the later films where I think it works much better. Okay, but because. I mean, to an extent, you have a little bit of that in the daughter character and her scenes, but uh, the... Which is really mm -hmm. interesting that you bring up, because the the young girl in Barking Dogs is also kind of the, one of the most compelling and relatable people, right? Right. And mm -hmm. I did feel that way for the... I did feel really feel that way for the young girl who is grabbed by this monster, 
Right, but one reason you did, I think, is because we're not getting that from the rest of the family who's trying to rescue her. Mm. It's it's kind of be, it's a Keystone Cops uh, yeah. gang of people who 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 if they're not going to get knocked over by the the monster are going to find a way to knock themselves out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like well, it, it's it, it kind of reminds. I mean, the tone that it, the movie gets is like I think the I think the tone to me is. It's a very even plane, which allows the monster stuff and the goofy family stuff and the political stuff to kind of like bear fruit, you know? Like it's it. Um, there's two movies I want to toss in to just to compare on it, which is that um, there's a just a remarkable biting acidic satire that came out a couple of years ago called Four Lions, which is about some four wacky, horribly incompetent goofballs. Except they actually happen to be terrorists. <laughs> so the movie is going some, you know, it's really, really out there in terms of its subject. But it expands, over the course of the movie, it expands to show that, like, the society that surrounds them is almost in, as absurd as what these guys are doing. And it also reminds me of this really great comedy called Nine Queens, which is about two dueling con artists. And it's like, imagine like if David Mamet had this kind of like super spirit of like one-upsmanship, two-upsmanship, and multi-upsmanship. They just keep double-crossing and triple-crossing each other. And there is a moment that, um, uh, please jump ahead for like one minute <laughs> if uh, to not get spoiled, but at the end of the movie, they have this whole amount of money in the bank. This is an Argentinian film, and when you go to the bank to collect it, the Argentinian economy had collapsed, so all the money in that bank is worthless. Literally tying in the political situation to show it's just as absurd as these two con men trying to one-up each other, you know? And I think, the, for me, the host works wonderfully in that way when the when the soldiers come in and their their exhortations and all the military formations that they do it in it gets acquires a level of goofy weird spirit that the family was doing and the monster thing was doing that's i mean so it worked all those elements worked at the same level and and makes me explore the different levels of respect i have to give to them in, in the film. So that, that was my impression. Well, I mean, I'll give the film a little more respect on a genre level because it is working in a genre that, while it has, with a few very notable standouts, Jaws, the original King Kong, these uh, you know giant uh, monster movies, most of them are pretty cheesy affairs. You have the endless series of Godzilla and and, and Gamera movies and, and whatnot, and and here working within the confines of this genre, it's doing better than 90% of the other movies in the genre do. It's a weird inversion. I, I like yeah. this. I like a film that is able to take the monster. Usually the monster is the kind of goofy charm that you get out of these films. Like, mm -hmm. oh, look at the guy in the rubber suit mm -hmm. smashing the paper mache models of the city. But here, the monster is kind of taken seriously. But the family drama is taken for laughs. <laughs> also, the monster is is shown very early in yes. broad daylight, which is is kind of a strange decision for a horror movie that usually tends to try to reveal these things more gradually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and again, it's the unexpected uh, inversion of uh, expectations. Yes, for sure, mm -hmm. for sure. And like Robert, what's like your general impressions of how successful do you think the host is in bouncing all these things together? Well, it's I think it's certainly successful as a monster movie because the the creature is always fun to watch. Even if it is kind of scary, you take it seriously enough because it is actually eating people. And we yep. have the 
the most likable character in the film is the is the daughter, and uh, she's in peril throughout. So I think that all of that works probably better than it has any right to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, the political stuff, I, I, I think it's played a bit broad, uh, but I, I think it, it works too, especially as the filmmaking comes together at the end and they kind of use uh, uh, symbols of protest uh, to fight the monster and the in the military at the end. Uh, so I, I think that all kind of works too. I mean, when they're throwing Molotov cocktails and they got the gas and the banners going off of the protest movement, I think that's... All of that stuff works, and I, I will agree that the family stuff is is broad and goofy. But uh, I, I like it. I think there's a generational thing going off, gotten there too. Um, I, I believe that they at least hint that uh, uh, Park uh, or Song Kang Ho is the way he is because of uh, he wasn't uh, treated well by his parents when he was a child and uh, went through some difficult uh, what. Uh, starvation and, and other issues at one point and um maybe he, he's underdeveloped because of that um and they do uh kill off the patriarch so it's the next generation that has to kind of pull themselves together uh mm. to solve the problems of the day um so i i think that's something going on there and i think that's all interesting Oh, that's that's really fascinating. I had not even considered that it might just be a, a generational dynamic. We had actually just talked in our earlier podcast about Herzog and how Werner Herzog's his attention towards films was very much meant to be a, a palate cleanser, like in the German New Wave, for like the previous generation who was, of course, and under thrall to the um, the Nazi regime, and so. You know, maybe the Korean New Wave is a similar generational thing, and certainly the French New Wave did, right? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's political changes going on in Korea. It's, it's gone away from, to more towards democracy, uh, away from um, with more of a benign di- military dictatorship it was in the 80s and before with, with the North Korean threat hanging over them. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the economy has approved, they've kind of liberalized that, although there's, there's still quite a bit of corruption there. Yeah. And another aspect of the film that kind of fits in with uh, the corruption is the uh, conspiracy uh, going on from the government to uh, basically say that there is a virus that the monster is causing that will uh, cause uh, all kinds of uh, disease. So everyone who is present at the monster attack uh, needs to be uh, quarantined, specifically our, our lead who uh, – comes in the closest uh, contact with the monster. And and that leads to another just radically strange tonal shift where he is given some kind of forced uh, brain operation, which uh, I'm still left a little confused by because it happens. They don't stop it in the nick of time. It happens, and he's kind of the same afterwards as he was before it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, also think of the sheer, also think of the unconventional way about like in your conventional average Godzilla or Gamera movie, or 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 more akin to like the 1950s monster movies in America, they would make up a virus as an excuse to talk about, to avoid talking about the monster. Whereas here, they literally make the virus thing with the monster, saying, that horrible monster, and, and he's got a virus, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and I mean, which leads to the, the title, The Host, uh, while 
while the virus actually turns out to be kind of a, a, a false flag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, the ho- that's a. I really like the title of the host because that is a. That is, I love these kind of titles where I like have multiple meanings, and mm-hmm. there's like at least three or four, I think. Right. right? <laughs> but it's like obviously the idea of the the monster itself, but then also the virus thing right. ties into the idea of the host, and then you can even, if you want to be uncharitable to the United States, you can treat it like how the forces that visit there they're not exactly really welcome, mm-hmm. and yet hey, there they are, <laughs> you know. So this this level of um, unwanted people attached to this or unwanted things attached to the situation mm-hmm. is uh, reflects in numerous ways in this film. Yeah. And also yeah. it's a lot of fun, I think, visually. Um, I, I, I think you, you can see it in, in, in other films, but he, he's always come up with creative ways for the creature to enter the frame. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you can see in Memory of Murder, he actually has one character you know, pop out of a closet at one point <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. so I, I think I think he's, he's following up here the creature will pop out of sewers or from overhead or just from odd angles and I, I think that's, that's a great point yes <laughs> you never know where he's gonna you never know where he's gonna come from and the fact that someone like literally pops out of a uh, pops out of a cabinet in memories of murder also ties into the guy who pops out of a dresser in um, uh, <laughs> in uh, barking dogs never bite it's like it's like bong Jun ho is some weird combination of like Alfred Hitchcock and the uh, Lady of the Witch in the wardrobe. <laughs> like, if you can get monsters erupting from furniture, that's some kind of platonic ideal for him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if 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 for if for no other if for no other value, like I I can't I can recommend people unequivocally to watch the host because. Uh, if you want to see a movie that takes you into some unexpected directions and unexpected ways, the film does this wonderfully over and over and over again. And sometimes when you see a unique movie, a way you want to praise it is you want to say, well, you know, there's no other movie like it. But I think in this case, there's no five movies in one like it. <laughs> <laughs> After um, the host, um, uh, Bong Joon-ho uh, takes this kind of level of randomness and decides to let other people share in the fun with a film called Tokyo. So said due to the exclamation point, which is actually a triptych of stories that take place in the city, uh, where one of the um, uh, stories is done by him and another by Michel Gondry and a third by uh, Leos Carax. Um, now, what is... Bong's ver, uh, part of the story. Well, he has, he has a, the third one, the story that closes out, which is usually a pretty good sign that it's the best one in a trip titcher anthology. Uh, it basically, it, it focuses on a guy that's so shut in that he never goes out, and his only contact with the outside world is uh, through pizza delivery. Hmm. Uh, and basically, <laughs> he falls in love with the uh, pizza delivery girl, and at the and he basically comes out of his house to search for her uh, because she stops coming and uh, it, it's uh, uh, they, they, they basically connect up so it's about connection <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, it, I, I think there's like there robots is... delivering pizza at the end. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why not? <laughs> so it gets it gets even more weirder. But he he actually leaps out to connect with somebody eventually. So it's, it's a nice little fun story. Yeah, it's like I think there's like actually a part of a, a subculture in in 
uh, in Japan of like actually young men who uh, spend their entire time inside their apartments. Yeah, I believe that's what it's, it's based on, or at least whether it's real or an urban legend that that's certainly uh, addressed at the beginning of the segment. I, I think it, it's it's quite fun. It's, it's quite sweet. It, it's not it's not real complicated, but I, it doesn't need to be. It's, it's a short film, and I, I think they do a very good job with that. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's interesting in how in this particular story, like this idea of a guy in a kind of a claustrophobic environment and his kind of need to escape does harken a, a little bit of an echo to what uh, Barking Dogs is uh, kind of trafficking in, you know? Sure. Uh, and yeah, he, wants, he wants to get out or he, he needs to get out even if he doesn't realize it. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yeah. The very yeah. That's very nicely put. And how did you um, did you find like uh, it had an uh, interesting connections with the other two parts of the Tokyo story? Mm, it's the positive one of it because the the first two I think are quite negative. Well, the first one is kind of negative. A, a young woman comes to uh, uh, Tokyo and they kind of. Uh, uh, drift apart, and then she kind of gets lost, and I think she actually literally becomes a piece of furniture. Oh, at one point, <laughs> uh, oh. that's the Gondry story. Uh, the the Carax, uh story basically has uh, a Mister Murder uh, wrecking shit in Tokyo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For those who don't know, Mister Murdy is this kind of. <laughs> demented gnome slash leprechaun kind of bearded figure <laughs> who lays waste to anything he can uh, grope or stuff into his mouth or possibly both. <laughs> more, more prominently featured in a uh, film we all love, Holy Motors. Yeah. And yeah. for those uh, who don't speak French, uh, Merd means shit. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you have Dennis Levant uh, uh, stopping around uh, Tokyo to the... Uh, musical scores of Godzilla's theme and uh, assaulting people <laughs> and I, I think he actually murders somebody at some point and is arrested and <laughs> sentenced to death and then mysteriously vanishes before it and that that segment seems to drag on forever uh, it's it certainly I, I find him much more uh, tolerable in Holy Motors than I do mm-hmm. here uh, well, uh, yeah well a little of him you know kind of goes a <laughs> long way and it's it's done in there's a lot of other context to what he's doing in Holy Motors whereas I can imagine if it's just him whoa <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there, there's a little bit more going on there so and uh, I guess you don't want to do th- three stories about a city and them all be negative and yeah. dark and bad and so I, I guess the Bong Joon-ho is the necessary balance uh, that's needed to hear I I'm not a huge fan of this uh, triptych. I, I I don't think they really connect all that well. So it's just a way of packaging three short films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think they're they they have some interesting ideas, but I don't know if they could should be shorter or longer. I think at the the length they are, they just kind of uh, are mostly there. They're, they're not long enough to really explore the issues they range mm-hmm. uh, they come up with but the the ideas there are so simple that they all seem kind of stretched beyond their uh, uh, breaking point to an extent although I, I think Shaking Tokyo is, is clearly the best of the bunch oh okay yeah it's especially fascinating to me how Michelle Gondry actually has a downer 
you know, since that dude seems to me kind of like a um, a bit of a geyser of whimsy, you know, so <laughs> like you just can't help just sewing just the, oh the wacky wonderness of what I can think up, you know. Not to mention when Bong Joon Ho <laughs> is the light one, <laughs> that yeah. really does speak uh, maybe to to the darkness of the 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 trilogy as a whole. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the very 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 good point. Yeah, this might be the only. Uh, Bong Joon-ho film where there's a, a perfectly clean, happy ending to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, and maybe the maybe the length like just keeps uh, keeps him from get making like the the four or five like uh, left and right turns, zigzag turns that he's done in his earlier film. Mm-hmm. But he does to me he actually takes that level of like that kind of singularity, Robert, that you just described, and he kind of uses it for. Make a very sedate kind, not sedate necessarily, but a very focused look in his next film, Mother in 2009. In, in that film, um, Hyeja Kim, uh, pardon my pronunciation, but uh, who's a very well-regarded like actress in Korea, uh, she plays a mother who cares for her adult son who's been afflicted with mental disabilities. And when her son is accused of a serious crime, she actually takes it upon herself to investigate the situation out in order to go and clear his name. Well, this seems like we're returning to memories of a murder uh, territory, but uh, whereas the first... Lansbury's memories of murder. Exactly. <laughs> whereas the first one uh, was very much a, uh, a procedural, uh, and, and, and this one is more of a Hitchcockian thriller. And I, I was really impressed by a, a number of individual sequences uh in this film which starts right at the very beginning where the uh the mother is uh doing some uh, working on a cutting board in in the store that she runs and she's witnessing uh her son getting into some trouble outside and you uh very slowly see her uh getting closer and closer to her fingers and her cutting as she's getting distracted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and this is done with with again wonderful hitchcockian uh timing uh, which might be even outdone by another scene that specifically kind of takes the rear window formula mm-hmm. and uh, or what would eventually become the blue velvet formula yep. and uh, has her uh, spying on her uh, her son's friend who she suspects uh, may be the killer and have uh, set her son up and uh, she's uh, she watches she's in the closet when he's uh, having sex with his girlfriend and as uh, as they are uh, sleeping, she uh, uh, tries to uh, to get out, which uh, I think leads to the the film's most suspenseful uh, scene. I, I, at this point, between this movie, um, uh, Memories of Murder, and Barking Dogs, I, uh, at this point, I almost would think that Bong uh, uh, Jun Ho should like have his promotional picture of him hiding in some piece of furniture, <laughs> 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 just like just like peeking out because it is a moti- It is definitely a motif that he's been <laughs> that he's been returning to. And dude, how interesting is it that like what an interesting choice of suspense about 
a mother just performing just a normal cooking activity. And of all things to draw suspense from, that's such a fascinating choice, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's all it's all about uh, the mother. I, I guess uh, my understanding is the lead actress is kind of like known as the Florence Henderson of uh, South Korea. Oh, really? <laughs> huh, Wow. So, I mean, I you say Hitchcock. I also think it's a, a little bit of Lynch in here. I mean, specifically the, the opening scene where she kind of emerges out of the wilderness and starts dancing to music that only she can hear. Uh, right. It's incredibly yeah. surreal, uh, especially when they uh, cut to the title card, when uh, which seems to be a fantasy version of herself, and then a quick cut to a more uh, dour uh, version of herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like you're – yeah, I think he's almost making like – whereas before he's – He's trying to make a wacky, zany movie world that's all of a part. Here it seems like he's actually sort of playing with our expectations on what we think we should be seeing, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, and I think it's similar in how the plot goes, which is basically like is a – I won't go call it sitcom-y, but it's definitely an interesting concept of like what does it <laughs> – much like how like, you know, Big Lebowski's – part of Big Lebowski's charm is how – Boy, how does an intricate plot get solved by a bunch of aimless, bowling-loving stoners, you know? <laughs> in this way, how is this really dark mystery is going to get solved by just an ordinary woman? Right, and uh, I think we need to give out a, a spoiler warning for this one because this is uh, one of those twisty films, and uh, I do want to get to what ends up being the solution to the mystery. But so before we do, though, been in warned, general, like, right. Brad, what was what's like your impression? Would you go and um, would you go and like recommend the film then, like for the unspoiled film for oh, for, for I would definitely re- recommend it. Uh, I will have one. I have one kind of issue with it, which uh, might be as a result of having seen now a, f- a few of these films in a row, okay. is is that the use of uh, mental retardation kind of as a, uh, a MacGuffin almost in, in this case, uh, where the, uh, the, the idea of whether this kid did or did not commit a murder is, is based on his being mentally disabled, and it calls back to a, a scene in Memories of a Murder where one of the suspects there was also mentally disabled, and... Um, the way I didn't have a problem in in the earlier film, but but here uh, the way it it's resolved, I, I think that's used as a little bit of a neat crutch. But if you kind of take that out of the equation, which I, I don't think it's uh, problematic enough to ruin the film, if you take that out of the equation, I think you have uh, really uh, a, an excellent thriller with a, a really solid lead. Yeah, for for me, I I kind of take it that whereas his uh, his earlier films were like taking five or five or six things and and showing how well they could almost work together, uh, they could work together as like a single piece. Here, this is a, a this is something that I would recommend to people in a sense that, um, that in a sense that it it's a Hitchcockian thriller. It's uh, thrilling and suspenseful, and you're intrigued by it, mm-hmm. and then it goes and takes it into a direction you are not expecting. That mm-hmm. le- that I think you can that 
find some rewards in like reevaluating the things you were thinking were suspenseful before, and it gives a whole new context to it. So right, because right. the entire uh, premise of the film is a woman trying to prove her son innocent, and then through a minor character's uh, eyewitness, we find out that her son is in fact guilty. And so then the film ends mm-hmm. with uh, the mother's character, the characters trying to struggle with the reality of this new information and uh, how she uh, resolves this at the end is quite odd to say the least she is an acupuncturist and they've uh, made it clear that uh, if uh, you uh, utilize acupuncture at a certain part of the thigh that you can uh, make somebody forget their troubles and so after she has realized that her world has has come crashing down because she knows that her son is the killer even though he is released from jail and and, uh, another person is, uh, is arrested in his place she knows the truth and can't live with that and then uses this strange acupuncture scene to forget that and begin dancing on a bus um do you remember where that location is so i can forget about richard franklin's link (laughs) (laughs) um yeah the acupuncture is a little bit too fan that's a case where it goes a microscope too fanciful Mm -hmm. for me well if you assume it works (laughs) Right, right. It, it, it might, it, I mean, she, she might believe it, but it might actually just be that it's, it's not going to be the acupuncture, but it's going to be booze and any other effort she can to just uh, frenetic dancing or whatever else she can turn to to turn herself outward that's instead a, of inward. That's a really good point, and I think it would work way much better if you if you assume it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the way the movie kind of presents it, it's it's a little more explicit that oh sure it, it happened because the 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 very very ending shot is is them like you said they're dancing on a bus and and on the one hand like uh, Bong Joon Ho has shown in earlier films he's perfectly fine to do this frenetic music and it's and that ending is so festive mm-hmm. <laughs> that that was a that was a case where for me I was just like whoa what the heck is what the heck is going on here you know and I mean, upon reflection uh, it 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 comes across a little better for me because there's a blinding kind of light that's coming in and and the um, and the people who are all there's some other people who are dancing on the bus and singing along and they're all done in silhouette and so it's kind of blind, half blinding and half in shadows the like kind of comes across to me like more like they're flitting images more than like people who are trying to seriously you know reckon with their situation you know right it, it starts and ends on a note of surrealism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean I, I like it it uh, starts on dancing and ends on dancing I, I thought for a long time when I first saw it that it would end at the scene at the beginning but I, I think it's quite interesting that Bong Joon-ho continues past where that scene would fit in uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to play out the denouement and the the final uh, dancing. I think that's a, a nice play with a structure. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And then, but, but before that that happened, when you get to the reveal of what that the mm-hmm. that the son is actually guilty, I think the move that's a very very cool move on that point because 
her pursuit, I think a lot of the charm movie, and I think the movie for the difficult subject is quite charming in a way because because she's a, a middle-aged woman who who has shown no previous investigative skills. And mm-hmm. and so I guess you're kind of, and, and I'm charmed by the idea of like, how is she going to get to the bottom of this stuff that the police can't, uh, can't deal with? Well, you have an echo from the host here, which is an absolute uh, willingness of a parent to do, to go to any lengths to save their child, any lengths. Exactly right. Yes, mm-hmm. and I think that's one, that's probably the most super cool aspect of the film for me because you say the lengths a parent will go to to help yes. their child, and I think then, he, he takes some very dark turns in those lengths. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. It's um, it kind of reminds me of this really of a great review Roger Ebert had about the film called Itu Mama Tambien and. Like, you can say that the plot of that movie is, like, the standard teenager, like, uh, a sex comedy plot that said, after that summer, everything was changed. But as Roger Ebert described, but the movie redefines what everything means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and in a similar way, Mother says the lengths of people will go to, I must save my child, I must save my child. And it's something that every parent, you would, you would hope anyway, right, that parents would definitely appreciate. Yes. The lengths you would go to save your child. I think you, but, even even the audience gets caught in, up in rooting for her. <laughs> exactly, right. mm-hmm. and then it pulls the rug out from under you to realize what how far this lengths really means. Mm-hmm. And then and it to me it put me in a real interesting spot to go and say, you know, what how would I go and judge those actions? You know, mm-hmm. like her, like like how to how much of an extent. Would I go, you know, and assign guilt to her and the things that she does? So it's mm-hmm. it's a really cool example of like of where Hitchcock can, has done a lot of thrillers where they thrill and they entertain and they you know they rev you up. Uh, this is a case where a movie that does those things and then it goes one step deeper to make you really evaluate all mm-hmm. those actions. Well, I'm not sure I, I'd agree this goes deeper than Hitchcock, who has gone very deep in, in, in any number of films, but, but I do tri- appreciate... But do you think... Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I do appreciate the similar... Uh, the similar way he plays with uh, who we're supposed to relate to in the story and what the audience point of view is. This is something that uh, I, that, that's very Hitchcockian. And so now, and, and also due to the performance uh, by uh, Hai Jacquim, who is just wonderful, you know, she sells this role so completely that when we have to turn from rooting for her to rooting against her, it creates uh, inner conflict in the audience, which is a cool thing for it to be doing. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's there's other elements, too. I mean, we, we kind of see her come alive to a, to a certain extent. She, she's, she's definitely the mother at the beginning, but causes it in course of the in investigation, she teams up with a younger man and then... I interpret that cigarette she shares after they uh, beat some information out of a pair of suspects <laughs> as postcoital. <laughs> <laughs> they, they right. They get, achieve a measure a measure of common satisfaction. Yeah, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> yeah, and, and I and one of the things I think that's so remarkable I find about that performance is it is doing these kind of different levels, but it is as restrained 
as the previous performances have been like all manic and out of control. You know, she's going to all these different directions, but it's very subtle and and there's so much held back. Right. The the comedy bits are are not from her. They 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 sometimes come from side characters, mm-hmm. but she's playing it straight throughout. Yeah. And and they we get to question all of her wisdom as a mother in here. I I believe yeah, she doesn't throw the rock, but she had advice and uh, advised her son, if anybody calls you a retard, hit them back twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's her own words that get actually destroy what she had, her uh, illusions about life. Yes. Yeah, it's some, it's some really powerful, ironic stuff that I would, that I would put on, on a level. This might not be the perfect comparison, but it just reminds me of some of the better Twilight Zone episodes. The way they powerfully used irony to look at, like, you know, contradictions in, in people's behavior, you know, and how, how by pushing to do something good, something of value that we find good, it can be turned to such evil ends, you know. And uh, to your point, Brad, about, like, that you, you do root against her at the end. Well... Yes, I mean when okay. you know when you she get does. to the point where she's committing murder and uh, mm-hmm. you know you 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 have no no choice. I, I think logically, but emotionally, you're torn because we've been with her all along. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I I think I would I personally would agree with you on on that. That yes, of course, what she's doing is horrifically wrong, but you do feel for her, right? And mm-hmm. you feel that like well, she's dedicated herself towards a mission. And it's just that the implications of that is takes you to this really dark place. I mean, how do you how do you treat that like kind of transition, uh, Robert? I mean, uh, I, I definitely sense, definitely sends conflicting signals. I mean, I, I think that's part of the plan is not to give us a neat, clean ending here, uh, and it, it's it's to make us question. And I, I think it's one of his more effective ones. I mean. You could argue that she's going to be living in hell, uh, that she's not going to forget, uh, no matter what she tries, um, and it's going to be she's going to know what she did, even mm-hmm. if, even if it's just in the subconscious for the rest of her life, or yeah, or maybe there is no justice. Right. I mean, right. There, she she feels very sorry for the man that's wrongly convicted, uh, who doesn't have a mother to, to look up for him, um, right. and a, and in a shot, I guess that uh, s- certainly seems to be. Uh, an homage to a uh, high and low by Kurosawa where you see the reflection of uh, the mother in the mirror in front of the, the man on the other side of the mirror. Oh yeah. Not yeah, Absolutely nice touch. Yeah. And I, there's a, there's something that about that final image, again, personally, I find it just a little, a little too goofy, but, but looking at the movie again, it kind of harkens back. I think it's almost working in a similar <laughs> level of what Bergman was doing at the guys at the end of the seventh seal. You know, they're mm-hmm. like also silhouetted and they're also dancing. Yeah. It's festive, but yet the sense that they are past the point of like no return, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think I think he holds it long too long, I would say. He holds it long from making a point to making it uncomfortable. Yes. Look at look at though uh how dancing how he treats dancing in, in subsequent films because here uh, 
the dancing is, is not really an act of, of joy, but an act of denial, an act of forgetting, uh, which will also feature in a dancing scene uh, in the next film where the dancers are equally doing so uh, to deny their own circumstances. Huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I, 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 I didn't kind of feel I didn't kind of get that impression. I guess partly because the music was so festive that I got mm-hmm. like that I was I was left a little confused myself. I was like, wait, are you trying to have us end on a high, on a nice note here? But uh, uh, but that and also I, I agree with you, Robert. It, it was on a little too long, and and I was just okay. Whatever point that you were making here, you kind of made it, and so how much longer? And that's one of the that's one of the double edged swords of many Korean films is that you really don't know if you're going to have another thirty minutes of them in a <laughs> silhouetted bus ride. They they might, <laughs> they just might. <laughs> yeah, but but ultimately, like I I I like this kind of I like this restrained kind of version of what he was doing, and and I. I like how he kept it on the Hitchcock level in the beginning and then gets it to uh, deeper at the end, which is kind of one, Brad, one of the things I wanted to run by you is like, because yes, Hitchcock's made very deep movies. Obviously, Vertigo is hugely deep. Mm -hmm. Rear Window is phenomenally on so many, interpreted on so many different levels. But to your mind, because you've seen a whole bunch more Hitchcock movies than I have, do you mind? Do you know of a Hitchcock one, or can you uh, that like starts off as a thriller and then becomes like really deep at the last uh, ten minutes? Well, I think Vertigo is probably the one that would most fit that definition. Okay, and it also has some commonalities uh, with Mother because mm-hmm. of the shifting allegiances allegiances with the protagonist, with uh, where you're starting the movie with Jimmy Stewart. He's our leading man. He's our guy. Yeah, and then by the end of it, he's so lost and committing such questionable acts that we're forced to leave him as our uh, audience POV. That, that's such a great point because in a similar way, because Jimmy Stewart is such an everyman, every, you, yeah. audiences expect like the most upstanding behavior from him. Just like in general, people expect the most upstanding behavior out of mo- out of mothers mm-hmm. and especially how the mother is portrayed in, in this movie. So when those expectations are upended, it's it becomes like a heck of a lot more thoughtful and fascinating and compelling as a result. Mm-hmm. Maybe Rope Two, where Jimmy Stewart gets his own words thrown in his face to justify right. murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's right. Because like up until that point, he's very very um, um, cocksure about like his uh, about his own theories, and then he and then boy, he has some, when he finds that his theories have been like borne out, he has to face the consequences of the things that he said. Yeah, like. But that pairing, like Stewart had such a really good career in in that period, both between like the Hitchcock films that he did and the um, westerns that he did, like the Anthony Mann films, like The Naked Spur. Like he was so good; at, they were so good at taking his normal persona, and and he and he's such a relatable uh, figure that you and and such a generally likable one that you're willing to hang around with him as he takes you to some really dark alleyways <laughs> for you to get bugged or worse, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I, yeah, I kind of think mother is a mother was a really nice, successful, uh, reappraisal, but whereas it's kind of more of a, uh, two step kind of uh, genre switch in his next movie, Snowpiercer in 2013, um, he returns to his 
multi-genre. We're going to throw everything in three kitchen sinks at you (laughs) with one of the most zaniest, deranged premises ever depicted as a movie plotline. It's about a post-apocalyptic future where all that's left of humanity is on board a train that's perpetually speeding across the Earth, which is entirely now a sub-zero landscape. And each section of the train has a different group of people residing in it, and the people living in the back, who have been tired of the lousy people and worse food, which also happens to be people, uh, (laughs) plan a revolt. So, but how far to the front of the train do they need to go (laughs) to change their situation? Well, now the tour of genres has led us into science fiction with uh, a real emphasis on the fiction. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This, and I actually think this film is a blast. I really enjoy it. But it's, ins- it's insane. <laughs> it, the, the, pre- the premise here is as crazy as can be. The effects are as crazy. And, and you know what? When the, lun- when the lunacy uh, gets up to the pitch that this movie sends it to, I actually just ha- have to uh, appreciate it. <laughs> hmm. I mean, this is a, this is a film where you're, if you want to go out and get a collection of situations that can't be more distinct from each other, it is... Uh, um, this is the movie for you. <laughs> like, as the people in the back of the train travel on their way up front, like, it seems like every car they go to on a train, by mind you, is a radically different environment. This is my favorite part of the movie, and it, it re- reminds me very much of a, a great Roger Corman film called Mask of the Red Death, oh. where there's also a progression of rooms of... Uh, different colors uh and and here like you say you go from uh this dingy back of the train where everyone's living in squalor and as you go forward you end up with a car that's a uh, a greenhouse a car that's an aquarium a car that's a schoolhouse uh that a car that the aforementioned uh dance club party a car that's a drug den yeah. um and and it's done with such uh, the, the, with with the, the production design here is amazing. This film mm-hmm. looks fantastic, despite some of the CGI looking kind of cartoonish. But that works because it was uh, it's based on a, a French graphic novel, so okay. its origins are in kind of a, a, a cartoon world. So the lack of realism for, from the CGI didn't really bother me. There's uh, in this movie. I'm going uh, a whole bunch of things in the movie bothered me, but what I find shocking is how this incredibly goofy, weird, and unbelievable premise doesn't bother me. <laughs> he uh, like he uh, he makes it work. He makes you believe in this train and believe in these guys and their struggles and and every new car that gives you every new kind of environment. I was rolling with it, I, and I was real anticipate. I was eagerly anticipating 
what – to a point I didn't even care for, for, for reasons that we'll discuss – I didn't really care about why they were getting to the front of the train. I had lost interest, but mm-hmm. except that I knew that whatever I was going to see was going to be the some of the craziest shit I've ever never <laughs> seen, <laughs> train transport or otherwise. Right, and, and I think uh, in contrast to the host, where um, uh, you you had a lead who was kind of t- as crazy as the concept here i was really impressed with what chris evans did because he provides this uh this action hero center i mean br- i mean he's a darker character than he would do in in captain america but he, but he's still kind of this uh solid center of someone we could believe could lead this uh this train revolt and everyone else around him, well, we'll, uh, we'll talk about a lot of this amazing supporting cast. Everyone else around him is chewing scenery like crazy. <laughs> and he's really an emotional center to the film. Yeah, this is his first like Amer- uh, English language film. And so I think it's a really interesting question to like pose to you guys as to, do you think they, um, uh, his directorial magic... Uh, transferred himself for um, uh, in the English language. I would say, yeah. I, I was surprised. I mean, Tilda Swinton is obviously chewing up scenery like nobody's business, but I, I think... With false teeth. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, I, I would agree with the praise for Chris Evans. I think he wanted a guy that plays Captain America in the movies to... When they go dark with him, they go really dark with uh, Chris Evans there. I mean, I can't think of anything darker than uh, uh, Captain America saying, uh, babies taste best. Right, right. Cannibal America, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that was that was kind of the moment where I was like, wow, there goes those tonal shifts again. <laughs> there goes those tonal shifts. Yeah, I, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm happy that you guys, I'm happy that you guys had that impression on Chris Evans because he was, to me, one of the big, weak links on the <laughs> film. Like, ironically, it harkens back to the, um, the barking dogs don't bite in that, like, he, to me, he phenomenally unconvinced, like, that, that scene where he does his cannibal speech, <laughs> he's supposed to be, obviously supposed to be distraught, I think they even have a tear across his face, but when I'm watching it, I was so not believing what he was saying <laughs> that I literally, my mind started to wander, and I started to wonder, uh, well, what would he like look like with a part of a baby sticking out of his mouth, and and uh, did he use salt or I, I don't know? <laughs> well, and yeah. he it, like there's maybe some other like let me give you just a quick counterexample. Nicholas Nicholas Cage would have killed it <laughs> for me. Like yeah. I, I well then again I believe he would he, he could give that speech right now as a trial or something right. <laughs> But uh, but I think in that scene he would have I would have believed it in a way that I, Chris Evans just could not do it for me. Well, I think there, there's a real problem with that speech in the writing, and mm. I'm not sure if it's a lost in translation situation. But it it was it was a speech that jarred me out of the movie. I think due to the actual dialogue, but I can't complain at all about the the delivery of it. I I I, I bought Evans' delivery of that and his. Uh, Intensity, his kind of uh, um, believability as an action hero. It, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and look, uh, I think the uh, Captain America movies are 
probably uh, the best of the Marvel films. And that couldn't be the case if you didn't have a really solid lead in those. So I, I think that when it comes to, you know, somebody to be the, the next Bruce Willis or the, the next uh, whoever uh, action guy who's going to really deliver uh, acting wise in addition to physicality, I, I think uh, Chris Evans might be the guy. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, think, would al- I would also add that I, I think to some extent that they're trying to subvert the white savior metaphor that's also running through it. I mean, we, we certainly mm-hmm. have a class metaphor here. I mean, I, I would say that's one of the predictable elements of the film, that when you have this metaphor, you know if you start at the back, you're going to end at the front. Um, but I also right. say that they're trying to uh, throw, throw some uh, monkey wrenches in that he's going to be the savior of everybody. I, I think it comes clear that uh, Song Kang Ho actually knows what what the score is, and has a better plan than what uh, Chris Evans has. If if they'll, they'll allow him to carry it out, uh, yeah, I see what you mean on that. Like he has right. There's a kind of basic native A that clearly gets played out at native A by the mm-hmm. end, by the end, and it's the uh, and it's kind of the cynical operator who has a little more accurate bead on on what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is this is hit home by its use of. Uh, the two amazing character actors, one in the back of the train and one in the front of the train, which is uh, John Hurt as, uh, as Chris Evans' mentor. Gilliam, and, uh, yes. Gilliam uh, perhaps uh, named after another director we know and love. <laughs> oh, like, I don't, know, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but to me, that school where the, late, uh, where the incredibly cheerful teacher mm-hmm. is, uh, is describing how the earth was destroyed as the camera's continually circling around her and, and they're bringing in like, like a- hundreds of eggs with guns hitting right, them with bull- it. bullets in them. Yeah, yeah, with bullets in them. I mean, that is, that is the kind of surreal, multi-level genius that is kind of sp- an epic of a uh, signature element of like Gilliam's best films. I think, I want to say personally that I actually, I actually think that um, he was that he was tributing Gilliam in that particular scene, in addition to naming John Hurt's character. Oh, oh for sure. Oh, yes. I mean, the, the yeah. And then and then Ed Harris, who is, is one of my favorite actors, and he gets to do some wonderful scenery chewing uh, at the end of the film. He gets to do where some he, literal chewing. He, yeah, exactly. He does. And, and, you know, he handles a lot of the, you know, the, the, the villainous uh, exposition, which w- would normally be just a drag, but because it's Ed Harris, it's just, for me, was a lot of fun watching him <laughs> deliver those lines. Yeah, interesting, man. For me, it was just a drag. <laughs> or it was a drag. Um, you know, like, you know, hey, you know, he, he, wor- he tries his best, you know, rocking the fluffy white bathrobe and and like doing the um uh, talking killer shtick while chewing on some steak or whatnot mm-hmm. but it is to me it doesn't get it doesn't transcend the talking killer trope which kind of does to, i mean in my impression stops the movie kind of dead for like five minutes at a time because he's really describing an in intricate detail how chris evans has been like led astray hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I mean, I, I think that part of the point, though, is just one white guy is going to uh, replace another white guy, and there's going to be no change. Uh, 
that leads to the, like that leads to like the sterile white environment of the front of the train <laughs> that leads to some interesting meaning you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know we're talking about political allegory here and you know it should be noted that the the subtext is text i mean this is it's not political the, the, allegory the political Brad. stuff is absolutely spelled out yeah. repeatedly uh from the beginning to the end which uh, I, is not necessarily a problem but it's just something that is part of the movie is you're not going to have to figure out what they're trying to say <laughs> they're just going to tell you outright <laughs> well to, like when i was saying i mean it's not political allegory to me it's actually political gory because it's just so viscerally obvious like mm-hmm. by the end when you have a literal little child running the front of the train you're like right. and then and then ed harris says see the guy in the back is helping the people in the front <laughs> and and they're all running in secret i'm just like oh my god God, like uh, this is like an this is like the weirdest episode of the Super Friends ever. <laughs> Just in how blatant, uh, you know, it is. <laughs> I, w- like, I will I will say this. I I do think that we we might put it too much through an American lens, and maybe Bong Joon Ho actually also has North Korea and their god dictator uh, in mind uh, as something he's point. going for. But yeah, it's it's very very blatant. Whatever <laughs> statement he's making. <laughs> mm-hmm. But here's the thing: when when you've got a movie that's this broad, I think it could tolerate that kind of broad messaging, because you know what we're really paying attention to is the production design, is the train speeding through these uh, ice blocks is the different you know the different environments uh, of each car and so look you have so many action films out there that show us the same world over and over and over again and this one shows us something that we haven't seen before uh, five or six things yes. because every every room has a different every room has a different tone to it because right before the school I want to say right before the the demented Gilliam-esque school you have this Pretty damn kick-ass axe-based fights, you know? That's where I guess Chris Evans shines the most, is like, you know, dodging blunt and sharp implements thrown <laughs> at him, you know? And But it was, but it's a really effective battle, and I think how, like, they yeah. just all get revealed with the shields and so on, and then immediately onrush these guys. This is, like, I think their first advancements through the back ends of the train were kind of very sparse, so when you see all these people are arrayed against them, and I think what, it, I think they get, um, Diffused by the blinding light coming in through the coming in through the windows, and then also like yeah yeah Brett right when they go under in, into the tunnel um, yeah they uh, they right, have yeah. uh, uh, infrared vision the uh, the bad guys do yeah. and so then we uh, so then the uh, folks from the back of the train they bring up torches to uh, counter that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah the way like right it's. It is very inspiring just in terms of, like, um, uh, kind of a plot detail basis to me about, like, how things just keep get, get keep getting shifted on you. And you're always, like, you're getting this onrush of all these different details. There's always something new and distinct to look at or, or admire or appreciate mm-hmm. during their travels. Yeah, and, and they're very uh, uh, un... Uh, uh, 
well, they, they, they waste no, no time or, or no, uh, uh, they don't save anybody that they don't have to say it. It's very, uh, uh, merciless in who it knocks off. It, it's not very sentimental at all. Yeah. And then like, I, I remember that guy who got his uh, arm frozen off at the, uh, right. <laughs> like that is, that is a, I think in that particular is a very nice case of, um, uh, of him, perfectly aligning the comedic elements because it, this guy his eyes are wide-eyed and he's shrieking like a banshee and it's goofy it's weirdly goofy but then at the same time you see what happens to his arm you, you can't blame him right it, it, and it creates this uh very vivid visual that explains why they can't leave the train Yes. Yeah. Now, now a lot of the, to me, a lot of the supporting characters kind of sort of like disappear into the woodwork. I mean, Jamie Bell is in the film, Octavia Spencer, they mm-hmm. kind of get like dealt with pretty quick. And then the, the um, Korean guy and his daughter, his daughter. His daughter. But, yeah. but again, we're, uh, we're back to uh, uh, Song Kang Ho, mm-hmm. who uh, finally, after playing uh, various level of doofuses in the other movies, <laughs> yes. here gets to be more action hero himself. Yeah, yeah. He's like kind of like the Gene Reno wise, uh, right. wise uh, like uh, uh, operator. Right. A drug addicted one, mm-hmm. but still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's kind of like, but part, I, you almost get the sense that the drug addiction is, well, yeah, I think it's explicit that his drug addiction is part of the way he's found to cope with right. all this mm-hmm. knowledge and that he's that he's had to like deal with and you know internalize right. right that also leads to kind of the very international nature of this whole production mm-hmm. uh, and and particularly the cast and how they handle uh, translations the the film really takes its time when uh, the Korean characters are talking to the uh, American characters the English language speaking characters yeah. in the they have a little translation device that's just as ridiculous as <laughs> anything else. Where it's kind of like a Hitchhiker's Guide Babblefish. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. But you know, you know uh, apparently the uh, American studio wanted to uh, cut this movie down quite a bit. Right. And, I think it was the uh, Miramax attack. Right. Story, yeah. Right? The, the Weinstein's and uh, Bong hold his held his ground, and uh, and I'm glad he did because it, it's it's a film that that is. Unique and uniquely his. Well, I I would go and it's kind of ironic that you know he Harvey Weinstein is kind of known one of his pet one of the names for him right is Harvey Scissorhands for how right. he's willing to like cut and hack away through a movie, but in in a what. I find might be very ironic. Um, there's some parts of Snowpiercer which could st- sort of stand to be stand to be caught, you know, like the, like I kind of think the dancing, like by the end the dancing parts don't kind uh, where they're all where they're da- walking through uh, what looks like a dance studio, mm-hmm. kind of kind of like goes kind of like goes nowhere, mm. you know. And one of the supporting characters who I find has a very, unf- is the hitman slash enforcer slash ultra assassin who's sent to the back of the train to dispatch Chris Evans and the crew. And to me has this unfortunate, like physical similarity to meatloaf, <laughs> which does not really compel him as any sort of badass opponent <laughs> and obstacle to overcome. So that completely falls flat to me. But now it just occurs to me that since he also looks a little bit like Harvey Weinstein, well, maybe if he cut that, then everybody wins. <laughs> but to me, like, uh, I think Tilda Swinton is just kind of the secret weapon. It's like, if, like, Marcy from the Peanuts comic strip became this evil bureaucrat, <laughs> like, like, it's it's super cool because 
even for a director who's known for putting people in weird situations and have and have people with very strange motivations. Tilda Swinton, I find, I'm very fascinated by her because I find again and again, she pulls these characterizations from like Dimension X (laughs) and you're like, I don't even know, I could even conceive of a framework where that character, you know, plus the way she fussily, bureaucratically deals with these horrific things that she's doing to the people on the back of the train is just uh, really weird to behold, you know? Mm -hmm. And how she's like a hostage who's still just, you know, saying, oh, you guys can't win. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think they make it clear that she's just a cog in the machine, too. Um, Especially with the little hand gesture she has going on there. uh, Yeah. That that get repeated. So maybe she worked her way up from uh, the factory floor beforehand. Yeah, that's interesting. That might be part of what she considers part of her backstory. But she can only rise so high, apparently. She's great at like doing that overuse of the overuse of the hand gesture, you know. Like this is this is how we're gonna learn how everything operates in the society through semaphore <laughs> <laughs> or through like uh, the interpretive dance version. Mm-hmm. I do have to ask you guys, what do you think on that ending? Which the the, the ending, I think uh, Bong Joon Ho has does a little bit of a slip on endings for like mother and especially this one because the basic ending is. He destroys the train, and the last thing you see is him and the uh, uh, Korean guy's daughter and the and the young uh, oh and boy. the young kid that's right and the young boy okay. so it's the young so yes the the, the, uh, the young boy and they see a polar bear and then cuts the credits <laughs> to which I go and <laughs> I mean wh- I, to me that left me so flat footed mm-hmm. because I was just. What the hell am I supposed to make on that? Was so, it because you I mean, didn't think that it was credible that uh, based on the situation someone would be able to survive outside the train? For or? me, it was not that. It okay. wasn't that. It was that now I have a situation where it's a young girl, a younger boy, and a bear. And is humanity supposed to survive this? There's two people and a bear. And yet I had a weird sense that the movie was trying to say this is hopeful because the bear, it was previously too cold for animals to survive. So, but now you have a bear. Right. And the snows. Bear will eat one or both of them (laughs) and game over. So why don't you show that scene? And they also make it clear that the snow is kind of melting so that there, there is a, some hope for the end of this ice age. Yeah, that's great. They can wait six months without any food or any more electricity and they'll be fine. Right. (laughs) I mean, I I think think it's meant to, to function on a symbolic basis, uh, but I, I agree that meshing the symbolic with the literal is a problem here. But, I mean, they're saying life is possible and this next generation is going to get to rebuild. I, I think he's saying that. I just don't think he's saying it well. Um, right. I mean, mm. maybe if you had, you know, 15 people <laughs> leave the train, then I, okay. You know, like, or maybe have something where, like, different parts of the train have different people uh, exit from them and then they gather and they all get to admire the polar bear. Then I think then I would find that just even though it's like fifteen and that would scantily g- improve the odds of all of humanity surviving. Right. But at least I, as an audience member, would believe it. But like those two guys, <laughs> like that's gonna be one hell of a relationship, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, you really, I think he stacked the deck to be just a little too scarce. Well, you know? the kids in the Phantom Menace grew up to be the kid, you know, the teenagers in Attack of the Clones, so maybe we're just supposed to wait. Oh, well, well, and you know how convincing that worked out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think uh, attacks on this film's credibility are, are, are warranted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's a metaphor. It's, um, I mean, this film only functions as a metaphor and, and as a thrilling action vehicle, but I mean, you can't take it too literally. Yeah, well, even though it is a literal action vehicle, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, but yes, as a right as a thriller that constantly gives you like these different these different surprises and these different environments, um, uh, Snowpiercer is just uh, I quite cool and and something that I think people would be could be very interested to see. Just um, it's. It dilutes any particular political message, which he's, I think, been fairly successful in his earlier films. But any sense of a political message is is just not just diluted, but kind of warped when you literally have the main guy at the front of the train going, well, here's my political message for you. And then almost <laughs> does one step away from literally pointing his finger at you and the uh, directly at the camera, you know? <laughs> so that was a very, yeah, so that's a very interesting, so Snowpiercer was a very interesting case of a high concept that gets a lot of, a lot of things right. And, and once again, it kind of shows how he has this kind of magical ability of taking the most unlikely things, the thing you find most unbelievable, and getting that to work, you know? And, but he continues kind of in a science fiction vein with his uh, next film, uh, Okja, I believe that's how you pronounce it, in uh, 2017. Have you seen the little biggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play around in. It's the story about a man and his granddaughter who are living in the countryside with their friendly pet, a gigantic pig. Now, unfortunately, though, the pig wins a contest that uh, requires sending her to the slaughterhouse of the company that had <laughs> created her. And it's up to the granddaughter and some fairly wacky eco-terrorists to try putting a stop to it. All right. Well, the, the pig uh, looks a little more like a, a, a giant two-elephant-sized hippo. Uh, yes. and But it is very convincingly rendered uh, with the CGI. And uh, the attempt here, I think, is to try to make a film uh, like E.T. or other films in which uh, a child and a creature form a bond, which is... Uh, I could call which it is BLT. Right, yeah. Which is threatened by various either government or business or evil agencies yeah and so what almost happened here was uh, a take on one of my favorite genre which are the kids movies that are completely inappropriate for kids <laughs> like uh willy wonka or time bandits these these mm. movies that are geared towards kids but have this uh dark edge to them and at some point i i feel like this is what they were going for and then they lost their nerve because they realized at some point oh this is just going to traumatize the kids 
kids. So we're going to have to make this a full-on adult film. So they start throwing the F-bomb around. They get they make it uh, so dark that, that now it can't even function as, as a kid's movie, which I think is a, a little bit of a loss because I think that would have been a little more interesting than what we ended up with. That's odd. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, we, hmm. we literally end up with a super pig holocaust. I mean, they're literally uh, showing images that would not be out of place in a World War II uh, picture. You just have to replace the right. super pigs. Right. And for yeah, and for some reason, because they're 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 genetically breeding these pigs for food, yet they make them uh, uber intelligent. So we see a scene at the beginning where the uh, the super pig rescues uh, rescues the little girl in a way that would require uh, you know very advanced intelligence to do, and uh, and then we're supposed to uh, you know and and then we're basically told that uh, these. You know, creatures of great intelligence are, are just all all going to be slaughtered, and if we, and if we can save one, well, I yeah, guess well, that's its version of a happy ending. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess <laughs> the kind of theme at the end of Snowpiercer reinforces itself, right? Well, you got one animal, hooray! I guess <laughs> the um, I think that I think Brad, you're kind of onto something in that it with with a bunch of the swear words and the. The forced, the the uh, the mating, the squeal the like a pig sequence. Yeah, the squeal. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the literal squeal like a pig sequence. If those were kind of removed, it could very well be like a child kind of uh, a child, a movie that would be suitable for children or or, cl- or close. Well, to a it. dark movie that would be suitable for children. Yeah, mm-hmm. with a little bit of something not at all suitable for the adults. For yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but but it's I yeah I. This is kind of a case where I think maybe they got skittish, or rather, maybe the producers got skittish because because he is um, uh, the, he's shown like to switch tones at such a like at such a like um, a hairpin turn that it could definitely freak people out. Like during like for example, like this is one of the most weirdest turns I've ever seen. There is a sequence where the uh, terrorists have have a, a security camera, which is watching this pig getting like this, having this force, ri- this mating ritual forced on her, and they're watching, and they're various states of horrified, and you hear this pig's agonized cries over the laptop, but they can't turn off the volume on the laptop, <laughs> and so this guy's rapidly pressing the volume, and it, it's nope, you're still hearing this screaming, you're still hearing this screaming, and it's like clearly meant to be played for laughs in a scene that just really doesn't need it <laughs> and doesn't really get enhanced by going in this weird direction. Right. And this is another international uh, production. So you have a uh, Korean cast and also um, American and, and British cast. And uh, Tilda Swinton is back in, uh, and how? in, in two, in a double role. Um, She's interesting here because, and this is actually a, a part of the movie I like, is she she plays the uh, uh, the head of the corporation that's developing these super pigs, and as she's explaining to her staff or the the workers, pretty much her evil plan. Right. She's talking about how evil her father was, and <laughs> she doesn't want to be evil like that. And there's a whole weird sub uh subplot in this movie of all the evil characters the characters doing question questionable things 
are very overtly trying to justify themselves. Mm-hmm. They, they really, this really takes the idea that everybody thinks they're the good guy to the extreme. Uh, you, uh, and oh, so you have the, corpora- the corporation head uh, trying to justify, well, we're really not that villainous. You know, we're trying, we're trying to, to feed people. Yeah. You know, Right, we're trying to feed people. Oh, yeah. We're trying to take these steps, and then even the the animal uh, liberation folks, who you know, represented by the uh, Paul uh, Dano character, is constantly like, "We're not going to hurt anybody." I yeah. know, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna hijack your tra- your bu- your truck, but we're not going to hurt anybody. Everything's cool. Right, right, right. We will abduct this animal in the nicest possible <laughs> right. way, which does lead to probably the the movie's best uh, action sequence, which is this uh, chase of uh, the super pig uh, through a uh, through a shopping mall. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that, right. is, that is a really excellent one. I mean, it's it's kind of like I got. I guess that's it shows really how much he can do with a budget because I think that is a pretty seamless action scene. It's exciting in a way that most CGI action scenes aren't exciting. Um, mm-hmm. Just telling the story. That, I mean, the camera moves, but it's not like moving incoherently. It it, it moving to maximize impact there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, what do you guys like actually think of uh, o- Okja, which is the name of the the name of the pig itself? Do you find that like um like the guys from Pulp Fiction that the pig's got some personality <laughs> and personality goes a long way? I I've, so I mean <laughs> I, I think I think they do a good job with Okja. I mean I at least you, you, they they make her Affectionate towards uh, what, Mija is is the young girl. Mm-hmm. And I, That's and right. I, I think she Okja works. I mean, I'm I'm never not convinced of Okja's presence, so I think that's good. And I, I, she has enough personality, but I mean, she's still an animal. <laughs> Right, we're rooting for Okja, but but uh, it doesn't take it, I think, to the next step where we f- at least I didn't feel like a great affection for this character, uh, for this you know for the, this animal as an individual animal, uh, as opposed to just one of uh, you know thousands of of animals, um, and so you know I mean I think it, I think the answer for me is is it's adequate at that but not exceptional <laughs> yeah uh i think i had a little more uh, affection and straight up affection and i enjoyed how the kind of abandon that okja had in the mm-hmm. wild how like there was a, a part i found particularly charming where um where they need to get some fish and the way you get fish is to have Okja leap out from a great height and do a backflop in the water that causes the fish to like land themselves over on the rocks. That was that was really charming. Uh, the way she figured out how to <laughs> save putting her um, uh, the granddaughter in a really precarious really precarious position. That was, mm-hmm. I think that was charmingly handled yeah i think yeah. the I think, once it, I think it she kind get, of loses mm-hmm. it after like act one that she doesn't really do anything except for be yeah rescued. Mm-hmm. yeah like i totally feel the same way when she gets when she gets captured it's she's just kind of like this the, a really big MacGuffin <laughs> that that everyone's chasing or possessing you know well i, I think you have a, a film that with a much better first half than a second half 
Could yeah. be, could be. That's a, that's an. Where do you think, Brad? Where do you think is like the halfway point where the movie, the, you know, loses or half loses for you? Well, I think when when Okja is 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 captured. Uh, okay. All the problematic stuff seems to happen uh, after that point. And there is nothing more problematic in this movie than the performance of Jake Gyllenhaal, who give to to say he is chewing the scenery would be a insult to people who chew scenery. <laughs> he is giving a ace, uh, Jim Carrey at his wildest. Uh, I don't I don't know what he was doing. This is he, a, he a seems strange... to be out of a Japanese anime. Literally, yeah, transformed into a man. <laughs> no kidding, right? If 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 he literally yelled out something and you saw a white cloud that had a bunch of exclamation points appear, he could scarcely be more cartoonish. Like, um, yeah, I he is an example in a weird way for me. He is a great example of the kind of particular genius of Tilda Swinton because it's not like Tilda Swinton isn't doing weird mm-hmm. in these two movies, but. She has a way of making that work, and one of the ways you can appreciate how much she makes both characters work is when you see a guy who is a similar weird character, but oh my god, does he get it wrong. Right, Tilda Swinton is designed for these kind of roles. Jake Gyllenhaal is not. Right, his performance is in a case where I literally think he is not just horribly wrong, he is like three kinds of wrong. <laughs> he manages to like have three left feet on here. Like I was actually racking my brain just trying to find a way of just describing to people who haven't seen the movie just how bad he is. And I think the way I I think if you can describe his performance, I would describe it as imagine Joachim Phoenix playing Andy Dick playing Steve Irwin the Crocodile <laughs> Hunter. Because <laughs> he's Kind of greasy, super, super maniacal, and yet has this intense love, hate, loathing adoration about his job that's like (laughs) schizophrenic to this very alarming degree. Like, he should be, by all rights, one of the greatest bad performances of all time. You know, not in the sense that he is atrocious so much that he is, I'm compelled by him. (laughs) Every time I see him in the movie, I just go, (laughs) I just chuckle myself and I go, Oh no! <laughs> What's this guy gonna do now? How did you but, but arrive the thi- at this the thing point? Is it, <laughs> right. Right. How the thing do we is get it, here? It takes you out of the movie. Oh, totally. And oh, no, so you're not like yeah. you're not like uh, alarmed by the extremeness of this character. You're worried for the actor and the actors around him. Is like, like who who took Jake off his meds? I mean, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For for me though, like, and in general for the movie, I kind of think this. Is like if if ET wasn't interesting, the ET, the alien in ET, mm-hmm. was not interesting at all. That's kind of how this movie was. Right. Like you know, like you're there's a whole level of like fascination where where when the creature or the alien force is put in danger, you kind of want to feel oh horrified, right? Instead, I'm just like oh well, well it's too bad to be sucks to be sucks to be her <laughs> like i was not i was not nearly as engaged to that extent that like steven spielberg's legendary movie did and so so if you have a guy like like who might as well be busting through a wall like Kool-Aid man <laughs> 
then I, I do kind of appreciate it. It's like, oh, wow, this this guy's like livening it up. It's like, <laughs> maybe it's part of it because our la- uh, relating to our last podcast, but like, imagine the Kinski of Klaus Kinski of Crocodile Hunters. <laughs> and so, uh, so I really like what that is, that kind of like the acting version of Tourette's. That's how I would also <laughs> describe it. It's the acting version of Tourette's. <laughs> Robert, were you similarly fascinated by, or slash repel, repulsed by what he was doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I have no <laughs> idea how you, you see that on set and you just let it say, oh, that's good. I mean, this is like, yeah, keep going. Let's yeah. Keep going. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, right. I haven't seen a, a performance that over the top in a semi-serious movie in a long time. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, wow. The fifth element, maybe? <laughs> right, right. And the closest one that comes to mind for me is um, uh, the Eddie Redmayne's really, really overwrought space prints in uh, uh, the Wachowski's uh, Jupiter, uh, uh, Jupiter, Jupiter mm. Ascending. Man, yeah, it's, it's like this epic, deranged thing that I'm shocked made. It sticks to the celluloid. And if there was like on the features of the DVD, if Netflix really ever releases the DVD on it, of Hall's attempt to abscond with the only print of the film, <laughs> I, for, I for one would not be a uh, a bit surprised. <laughs> like apart from his epic epic performance, what what did you guys think of like all the other performances? I want to. I just want to add in for me. I really, I really also like on a meta level how Paul Dano continues his streak of movies where Paul Dano gets the <laughs> shit kicked out of him. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although that, uh, I, now that you bring him up, I gotta say that I thought his was the most engaging performance in the film. Okay. I, I, I mean, as, as odd as it was to kind of see a character like that, you know, uh, like I was mentioning before, trying to justify their actions, uh, he really brought some affection to it. So you kind of, it, it almost reminds. Reminded me of uh, Albert Brooks in Drive, who's uh, who's doing the villain thing, but then when he uh, kills somebody, he actually tries to be kind to the guy as he's killing him. Yes, and so Paul Dano is like uh, got all these misguided uh, ideas that are basically going to get Okja uh, captured uh, despite their uh, their group's uh, goals, and the, you know, but he is is delivering it with such utter sincerity <laughs> and idealism. <laughs> I guess he carries a little of that like um, performance that he did from the uh, the Mercy movie where he does Brian where he did Brian Wilson. He has that level of earnestness serves him really well here. And in a nice turn, he does manages to actually deliver a savage beating, <laughs> and then says, "Okay, now we've revoked your membership to right. <laughs> to the um, to me unfortunate acronym of ALF." You know. <laughs> Like, it's like I don't know if uh, I don't know if uh, Bong Joon uh, Ho has heard of that uh, uh, sitcom classic, but uh, it that's an unfortunate callback in my memory bank, at least. <laughs> and it is super cute how like he they go through all the trouble of the mission and then says to the little girl, "Well, we need your permission." And then and I think that's kind of a very cute moment where the uh, Korean guy like basically lies, right? right. Mis- Just, it won't translate it correctly. Yeah, like, and I, I like how that scene is presented because, like, I think it's framed in a way where you expect a girl will be touched by Paul Dano's story. Instead, she's she's charmingly like matter of fact in everything she does. Single minded. Like once again, I think um, uh, Jun Ho takes something that you would think is unlikely, but then 
like her matter of factness and her just stubborn like directness was kind of like I was engaged. Well, look at look at the uh, the kid from the host, and you you kind of have the same dynamic here. Here's a director where the uh, the kids aren't obnoxious, but the adults are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's it's a kind of a yeah, it's kind of a magical trick that this guy's able to pull. You know, as we're looking over like his films, like. It's amazing the guy's batting average to me about like how he makes all these wild turns and all these different tones and tries to cram so many different things in a film. How successful he is, I'd probably say it's like over 500, over 600 in terms of the, the moves that he has that's right. The, the only film of his that I absolutely did not like is uh, the dog movie at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I, 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 I like them all, but... In, at different levels, because I think uh, what he's got is a lot of movies that have both good and bad scenes within the same movie. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I, I think he's made a masterpiece. Uh, the closest I, uh, I could come to is uh, Memories of a Murder. But at the, at the same time, they all have scenes of value, scenes that I'm glad I saw. Uh, some of them are most of the film. Others are a little more, uh, you know, up and down, up and down. But, uh, but, but you know, it, it's, it's interesting how, you know, this go-for-broke style leads to such uh, personal filmmaking. Yeah, and it leads me to ask you guys on a question, like, uh, to the extent that you guys have a favorite scene or shot that's not necessarily the best example of, of like of what Bong Joon Ho can do, but the most <laughs> Bong Joon Ho can do. I'll go start first. And sometimes you get to a, a movie, and the movie is being creative, but then the movie takes a turn, one more turn than you ever would have expected, and. And to me, that's just a real thrilling moment because then you feel like all the floodgates are open, all then there's no horizon, right? And to me, I think my favorite moment is when, it, after a bunch of car, train cars in Snowpiercer, they go to uh, an aquarium where the <laughs> animals are literally floating in tanks above the train car where the people are going. And there's a bar there. And uh, it's a sushi bar. A sushi <laughs> bar. Exactly. That it's a sushi bar. So I'm like, oh, my God, what a great tap dance. That's like, that's an ironic layered cake. You know what I, you know, you guys know what I'm saying? You know, and then just, the, but that's exactly right, Brad. As it's, the camera is like following them as they travel through the car and as it pans and it's it moves backwards, then a sushi bar comes into view as where they're hanging out. And I'm like, oh, wow. Wow. At that moment, I was completely and utterly won over by the film. And I'm like, I don't care if this train goes into space. Or I don't care what happens with this. I am, I am literally on board with what you, the next thing you're going to go present on, on that environment. So that, was, that to me is like um, uh, Bong Joon-ho's most transcendent moment for me. Well, when it comes to most, I, I think Snowpiercer just is the one. That it, it, it's the one where he's going farthest out uh, into his imagination or, or into the imaginations based on, on a work. But, uh, but probably just as far as visual resonance, uh, in, the, uh, in Memories of a Murder, the marker of the gravesite is such an uh, unforgettable visual motif and 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 whenever we see it it called back in the film it brings the film back into 
its most uh, resonant themes. Sweet. Nicely put, man. Nicely put. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There's so many of them. Um, to be sure. And, and it's you can totally pass <laughs> along multiples. I mean, the closing shot of Memories of Murder, but uh, also I, I, I like when they open the doors and find the, the, the men on the other side of the door waiting for them, and they pass around a fish, which they kind of got with their axe. Oh, yeah, nice. And uh, Snowpiercer mm-hmm. is just like, <laughs> where, where did this come from, and what's going to happen next? I think that's, that's the promise. You don't know what's going to be behind that door that gets opened. Right, they take the mask, maybe the mask of the Red Death model, but have through every door is a different wonder. <laughs> Sometimes it's a disturbing wonder, but a wonder nonetheless. That's one of the greatest values you have on this particular director is is a guy who is more than willing to go and take chances and uh, and throw in very uh, crazy twists. And uh, at his best, he goes and shows things you never would even expect to see, and makes it work when a kind of uh, as a conventional, you know, movie with a conventional length, but good lord, so many different disparate moving parts that seem to be working in contradictory directions, and he finds a way, you know, to make it work. Oh man, so so Robert, I'm very, we're very grateful that you were able to come on board and join us on this uh, podcast. I think it's been a lot of fun exploring <laughs> all the zany directions that this guy oh, has yeah. taken. I mean, it, it was very a pleasure just to rewatch the Bong Joon Ho films. Uh, there, there really aren't very many directors like him, and that's that's a plus. I mean, you you go in and you you're given genre, and it's not genre that you were expecting. And I, 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 we need more directors like that. Totally agreed. For for however I take it, like uh, take one, his next movie, I'm glad as hell that he's still making that, and I hope he manages to make uh, you know many more. I would love to see his pirate movie, for example. <laughs> well, the way he's hopping genres, we might get to. <laughs> yeah, sweet, sweet. Now, now, Robert, um, who, what are is still watching the skies going to be watching, and in the upcoming future well, uh, for you? Next month, we're gonna we have Patrick Rapal invited as a guest, and we were, uh, have planned to talk about. Uh, Two features, uh, Quatermass and the Pit uh, from 1967 oh, awesome. and Prince of Darkness. I, I think we'll find both are more closely related than they might appear on first blush. Oh, that's we'll, magnificent. We'll I'm, definitely be checking that out. Absolutely. I'm I'm huge fans of both, and and that Prince of Darkness is part of that magnificent run by John Carpenter that... That is still underappreciated, you know. Yeah, I, 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 it's going to be a lot of fun, and there's there's some ideas to play with, and there's just some pure horror to play with, and Carpenter, Carpenter score is uh, one of his best. Can't wait to go and check uh, check out what you guys have to say on those films. In terms of like how you guys listening can go and comment or um, criticize or suggest on what uh, we at the Directors Club are doing, you can uh, reach us over at the email address of directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online through iTunes at Directors Club Podcast or call it, get it, reach us through our website at uh, Directors Club podcast.com and if you like what you're hearing please do subscribe to us on itunes exactly exactly so once again robert our our thanks for uh having you along with us on this uh journey through the works of bong joon ho it was my pleasure 
and uh, hope to catch uh, you guys listeners again on a next episode out of the Directors Club. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks.